1: Decades ago, I said that, you know, I didn't know much about Brazil, still don't, but from what I heard from people who had been there, or people who were from there, uh, because I'd heard a long time ago that outside of Africa, the largest population of black people is in Brazil, but you don't ever see them on television, even on the Brazilian programs. It's every now and then, I mean, somebody will pan the camera, and you will spot them on the uh, at, at Mardi Gras time. But where are they the rest of the time? When they make the advertisements and do all the hoopla and whatnot, you wouldn't think that is, you know, it was just. You would think that there's just a smattering of black people in Brazil. I mean, when I say black people, the black people look like black people in Af- in Central Africa. But uh, the numbers are huge. But they all push back up in those heels. But when it comes to classification, from what I understand, Brazilians will tell you, we don't have any discrimination here. You know, everybody's the same. Color don't make no difference here. This is Brazil.
2: In Brazil, Carnival is in full swing, but far from the beaches and tourist-packed events in the working-class and predominantly Afro-Brazilian neighborhoods, Carnival is decidedly different. Known there as bachi Bola, crews in Rio's outskirts don clown-like costumes and race through neighborhoods to a frenetic mix of funk, fireworks, and fear. Men have long dominated bachi Bola, but as NPR's Carrie Kahn reports, women are joining in.
3: Monique Vieira is busy sewing long strips of colorful pink lycra pieces for the Ben Feto or Well Done cruise Bachibola costume this year.
4: I'm
3: sewing the cap here to cover the crew member's face, she says, The 39-year-old mechanical engineer says she also sews the huge, ruffly skirts, as well as the bulging, feather-filled sleeves. Incandescent colored tights are part of the mix, as well as a glittery headdress. We do it differently than Carnaval and Rio's beach neighborhoods and tourist areas, she says. They like those block parties, she says, where everyone is practically naked, but not here. Bachibolas, loosely translated as the ball beaters, celebrate Carnaval in Rio's outskirts. Their name comes from the ball tied to the end of a large stick that they slam against the ground, enchanting and intimidating onlookers. Just where this mix of extravagant costumes and revelry came from is much debated. Some say Portuguese colonizers brought it over. Or like Andra Maturana, who runs Benfeita with her husband, believes it was born out of her neighborhood's working-class roots.
4: And they this <laughs>
3: workers and industries out here would wear their oversized overalls and go on strike and bang balls on the ground as a form of protest she says as a kid her mother wouldn't let her join Bachibola, saying it was too dangerous crews were known to fight rivals in the streets and the media highlights any local brawls to this day she says but now 26 and a new mom Maturana says times are changing as drummers practice at her home, that doubles as the Benfeta workshop, she says "Bachibola is overcoming the stigma.
4: It
3: has long been an extremely masculine culture, but today more and more women participate, she says. This year, 40 women are taking part. There were only six when she started in 2018. But she'd like to see more help from the city. Sabrina Veloso is a cultural researcher in Rio. As grandes patrocinadoras don't pro for bola enquanto uma manifestação cultural. She says the big carnival sponsors aren't interested in Bachibola. Veloso, who is also a member of the all female Berlecci's crew, says Rio's working class outskirts have long been marginalized. It's not surprising its celebrations don't get much tourist promotion nor dollars. (laughs) Unfazed, Veloso and her all-women crew get ready as funk music booms on the street below. Crew leader Vanessa Amorim says she'll keep spreading the word of (laughs) bachibola. We keep fighting and persisting. As a barrage of fireworks fill the sky and drown out the music, the bachibolas hit the streets, bashing their balls on the ground. The men's crew starts running, too. Vanessa Amorim's bachibola is finally getting respect here at home, too. These days, even the men are accepting us as equals. We no longer parade behind them or in front. We do it side by side. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. Let me ask you all this.
5: I was talking to one of my sisters last night. I said, what? Are the most expensive foods in the world? That's a question, class. <laughs> what are the most expensive foods in the world? Okay, he can get an A. That's one, right? Go, class. <laughs> Truffles, caviar, not oysters, and chocolate.
6: The price of cocoa has never been higher. That's right. Just before Valentine's Day, the price of the key ingredient in chocolate has broken a 47-year record. The good news is this will not affect your heart-shaped candy this year. The bad news is you're actually already paying more, as NPR's Alina
7: Seljuk reports.
8: Over decades selling chocolates, Ginger Park has learned this about Valentine's Day.
7: You cannot get used to that day. It is
8: just insane. And she learned it kind of instantly because she and her sister managed to open the shop for the first time on Valentine's Day, waltzing in unprepared in
9: high heels. We just kind of la dee into the chocolate shop
2: and then we saw a line of men. This is 1984.
10: One guy looked at me like, are you crazy? It's Valentine's Day. Aren't you open
8: early? Park's little store in downtown Washington, D.C. is called Chocolate Chocolate. Its shelves and displays glisten with shiny domes of handcrafted bonbons.
10: Green tea, she's so lime.
8: And nostalgic sea salt caramels. Pecan
7: caramel patties. Chewy, gooey, crunchy.
8: The sweets travel here from Belgium and Switzerland, Vermont and Kansas City. And everywhere, chocolate makers and sellers are feeling the price crunch.
10: Pre-pandemic, our Belgian chocolates were around $65 a
7: pound, and they're now $85 a pound. So it has really gone up.
8: And the same with our artisanals. The main culprit is cocoa. It's the one thing you must have to make chocolate, and its cost has been grinding upward for two years. Over the past year, it more than doubled, and this month, it reached an all-time high, breaking the record from 1977, a year before Hershey introduced Reese's Pieces.
11: It's made for an interesting several months just watching these prices fluctuate.
8: Every day, Billy Roberts, a senior analyst at CoBank, checks on cocoa Futures. That's how investors trade in cocoa.
11: And, sorry, I just logged on to there, and yeah, those prices are up again. Oh, wow.
8: Cocoa's troubles stem from extreme weather in West Africa, where farmers grow the majority of the world's cacao beans, and they faced extreme weather.
11: There were massive rains, and then there was a massive uh, dry spell coupled with with wind, and it led to some some pretty harsh growing conditions for cocoa. Harvests are
8: coming up short for the third year in a row. Chocolate manufacturers like Nestle and Cadbury began raising their prices, too, to offset new costs.
3: Cocoa is trading at historic highs.
8: That's Hershey CEO Michelle Buck last week. Given where cocoa
5: prices are, we will be using every tool in our toolbox, including pricing, as a way to manage the business.
8: Data firm Euromonitor says American shoppers are paying 17% more for chocolate than they did two years ago. Experts say because a new crop won't come for months, Easter and especially Halloween could see the worst of it. Ginger Park at Chocolate Chocolate says it's a constant balance.
7: We try not to raise the prices on our customers, but, you know, there are times when we have to. We have no choice.
8: Overall, some people say they are switching to cheaper chocolate or buying a bit less. But this Valentine's Day, forecasts say each shopper on average will spend more than they did in the past five years. And Park says her customers have seemed unfazed by higher prices, which is easy to do when you want one of everything. How do I I choose? And prices are not listed in the display. I have no idea how much any of this even costs, and I don't care.
10: Good. Is, Is this how this works? Chocolate's one of those things that,
8: you know, it's special. And it makes people happy, she says. Can you really put a price on that? Alina Seluch, NPR News.
6: The Center City Slam is an indoor rowing competition in Philadelphia. Young rowers go all out for 2000 meters. For some, this is their moment. If they do well, they get off the rowing machine and onto the Schuylkill River just in time for spring. Buffy Gorilla reports from Philadelphia. Center City Slam
12: 2024. We're about 7
13: minutes away from our first
8: event. It's all happening
10: in a rec center in West Philly. High school rowers are everywhere. Boys and girls, some stretching or warming up, others lounging in groups, distracting themselves with their phones. You can smell the high school gym. We are starting on time. On one side of the room is the competition zone, where long lines of rowing machines are waiting, packed so close together you can reach out and touch your
12: opponent. Please find your erg if you are in
10: our first event. 14-year-old Sam Wallace is a freshman at LaSalle College High School. He's entirely focused on his first rowing competition. Sam's dressed in a white t-shirt and navy shorts. He's buzzing, talking fast.
14: So I started in the winter. I played soccer in the fall, and I saw crew as one of the sports that LaSalle offered, and I was interested.
10: Coach Kennedy from Mount St. Joseph Academy considers this event the unofficial end of the indoor training season.
15: It's a great opportunity to come out of that winter training mode, and to get that feeling of the starting line again.
10: All competitors race the 2,000 meters on an erg, a.k.a. a rowing machine.
15: It doesn't sound long until you're a rower and and trying to do that on the machine. It is really
14: a battle. It's you versus the machine.
10: Sam remembers his first day giving that distance a whirl.
14: I, I, I honestly felt terrible. My arms were killing me, my legs hurt, and I was out of breath.
10: But he kept coming back, and now Sam's one pressure-filled row from securing a spot on the team.
14: Yeah, I'm pretty confident. I think I put in enough work, so fingers crossed.
13: high school novice on the A and the b There's
14: no
10: starting pistol, but with a faint whoosh, flywheel spin, and gangly teen boy arms start flying. It's on. A guy a couple ergs down from Sam went out too fast and vomits into a trash can. Not Sam. He's hanging in there. There's a big screen showing everyone's progress, and Sam's computer boat slides in first. He placed 10th in his event.
13: Congratulations.
5: How do you feel?
9: Tired.
10: (laughs) Sam grabs a soft pretzel from a concessions table. He's pretty confident he's made the team.
14: We're getting on the water next weekend, actually. So, yeah, that'll be my first time on the boat. So I'm kind of excited.
10: And he should be. Sam's results did earn him a spot in the first freshman boat for LaSalle College High School. For NPR News, this is Buffy Gorilla in Philadelphia.
16: Simple fact is, Anderson, we got two
17: cultures down here. White culture and the colored culture. Now, that's the way it always has been. That's the way it always will be.
18: The rest of America don't see it that way, Mr. Mayor. The rest of America don't mean jack shit. you in Mississippi now.
12: I think the answer has to be that we must have a future for the library here in Jackson.
2: To have more libraries and better buildings is a vision the Jackson Hines Library Board has not given up on. Paul Forster believes there's a bright future there, but not without change that needs to happen now.
12: The short answer, unfortunately, is it's not It's not great right now.
2: The historic library on State Street, the Eudora Welty Branch, is the latest Jackson Library to join the Tisdale Branch in closing its doors for good. The downtown location is slated to be turned into a green space.
12: City has said that they're no longer maintaining this building and the HVAC is not currently functional.
2: According to the library system website, Richard Wright Library is temporarily closed and the Willie Morris Branch remains open but has a water leak.
12: It's open, but we've only got, for example, one bathroom working there.
2: So where is the crippling library system on the city's priority list?
12: We're, we're in, in a little bit of a low spot here, and we really need the city and the county to step up and help us look to a future that we have a robust library system.
2: With only five library branches in the metro, thousands of Jacksonians in different parts of the city may have to travel further to visit a branch.
7: I actually go to all of them. Whenever, whatever one is open, that's what I'm going to go to. Whichever one is closer, that's what I'm going to go to.
2: For library goers like Quenisha West and her five kids, Libraries are essential. She visits the Medgar Evers branch frequently to use the computers to fill out paperwork for public service.
7: My message to everyone is to fight for what we need, fight for things that we need for our children and for ourselves.
2: West and her kids are only a fraction of library goers here. Teachers with Kids University often bring students ages 5 to 6 years old on a field trip to the library every Wednesday. And these kids don't want to miss out.
7: This is something positive that the children can be doing instead of out in the street not learning.
2: Preschool teacher Lilia Jones says it's a safe space for many. She hopes the branches stay open.
7: I think that and I hope that it's positive that we can keep these libraries open because they are so important whether or not children like the one at kids
2: university will have more branches in the future lies in the hands of the city council
16: we need a big improvement but where we've dropped the ball in the past has been not keeping the maintenance up and providing sufficient maintenance funds for the libraries to be maintained at a high level.
2: City leaders say resources and funds are limited.
16: It's right at a million dollars and probably needs to be about five million dollars. We've had compromised libraries Uh, that it's the city's responsibility to maintain those buildings, and we haven't done a good job of that.
2: For all of the library branches in Jackson and Hines County together, the budget is $4.2 million, but none of that goes to maintaining buildings. Instead, much of the funding goes to staffing and supplies.
12: But we are way behind on what we spend per capita, uh, even with other southeast cities like Birmingham, Memphis, New Orleans, not super rich cities either.
2: Recently, the city received a $10 million insurance settlement from a hailstorm that damaged city buildings, including the Eudora Welty branch. In a statement, the Jackson Hines Library System said they hope the funds from the settlement can be utilized to help reestablish a vibrant central library in downtown.
16: We need to devote some of that $10 million to, to upgrading those five remaining libraries.
2: Councilman Foote says he's encouraged the library system to reach out to Jackson Public Schools for future empty buildings that could potentially be a host for a branch.
16: But this money gives us a chance to up our game as, as the administration and the, and the city council needs to work and join forces to make that happen.
12: If we're going to say We value libraries, and if we're going to say there's a future for libraries in Jackson and Hines County, we have really got to work with our partners. We, the board, have got to work with our partners to up our funding and really get strategic about how we think about where we put branches, how we keep them staffed. What are the essential services that libraries need to have to really serve our citizens here in the capital city?
2: In Jackson, Michaela Franklin, 16, WAPT News.
5: As your body grows your mind it's great to because knowledge is power. Rocking, but schoolhouse, schoolhouse.
17: Caribou High School is likely to become the first school in Maine to use fingerprint software to track student attendance under a plan that has drawn criticism over privacy concerns from the American Civil Liberties Union of Maine. The decision by Regional School Unit 39 to use a private company to collect and store students' biometric data in a public school setting raises serious issues, the ACLU of Maine says. On Tuesday, the Civil Liberties Organization publicly challenged the school district in a statement to media outlets stating that it has filed a public records request, seeking more information about the district's decision to hire Identimetrics, a firm based in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, to track student attendance and tardiness by having students place their fingers on a biometric scanner. Caribou High School enrolls about 460 students in grades 9 to 12. In its public records request, the ACLU seeks all contract information and communications between RSU 39 and Identimetrics. Privacy is not about secrecy. It's about deciding what you share and when, ACLU Legal Director Carol Garvin said in the statement. Maine's people have a clear interest in protecting their most sensitive information from big tech. Collecting students' fingerprints at a public high school is of serious concern to the public, the Caribou community deserves answers, and the rest of Maine should take note, so we can proactively foster transparency and enact sensible guardrails to protect our children's privacy in all schools. Samuel Crankshaw, spokesperson for the ACLU of Maine, said his organization was not aware of any other K-12 public school district in Maine that utilizes a biometric tracking system. Crankshaw cited an October 2023 ACLU research report that asserts that the surveillance industry in America is whipping up fear around school shootings, bullying and suicides in order to drive up demand for their products. The research report found that 10% of students aged 14 to 18 who were surveyed said their school uses fingerprint scanners as a primary surveillance tool. Roughly 49% of students said districts use monitoring software to surveil their internet searches on school-issued devices, while 19% of students said their schools use facial recognition cameras. On its website, Identimetric states that its biometric platform can be used to log attendance, charge school lunch. Check out library media, track staff time, as well as manage school events such as dances, sporting events, and student elections. The decision to hire Identity Metrics Incorporated became public last month when Caribou High School Principal Jamie Selfridge notified parents and guardians in a letter dated January 24, 2024. Attendance and tardiness records will be entered from the fingerprint system into Power School, the district's student management system, Selfridge said. In her letter, Selfridge said the new student tracking system, would take effect in the next trimester, presumably March through June 2024. Selfridge said the new tracking system will prove to be more accurate and less time-consuming than tracking a student's attendance manually, will streamline the attendance process and allow teachers to spend more time educating students rather than keeping tabs on missing students, and will significantly enhance school security measures by ensuring that a student's entry and exits from the high school are accurately recorded. Privacy Issues Acknowledged but the principal also acknowledged that the introduction of a new tracking system might concern some parents. Please be assured that the new software adheres to strict privacy guidelines, and it will only be used for attendance purposes within our school environment, Selfridge wrote in her message. We understand that the introduction of any new technology can produce skepticism or concerns. Thank you for your cooperation and support in helping us implement this innovative solution. We firmly believe that the software will contribute to improving our school's operations and ultimately enhance the educational experience for your child, Selfridge said. Selfridge and RSU 39 Superintendent Jane McCall were contacted by email on Tuesday and asked if parents will have the option of opting out of the fingerprinting system, if there were going to be safeguards in place to protect student data from a privacy breach, and if there were guarantees against having a student's personal information sold to advertisers. Selfridge and McCall did not respond to the Press Herald's request. Attempts to reach the chairperson of RSU 39's Board of Directors also was unsuccessful.
13: The, the first thing we're going to do to, I think, stop racism is stop focusing on racism. Stop
5: focusing
13: on
19: racism. You're charged with aggravated criminal damage to property that is a New video this afternoon here as the suspect in the Jack,
12: uh, Jackie Robinson statue theft investigation makes a first appearance in court comes on a day when police announced an arrest in the case.
15: And it's a story that's drawn national attention since the statue was stolen from McAdams Park last month. 12 News reporter Brock Wilson was at that press conference where the announcement was made earlier today. He's live at McAdams Park with the details about the suspects.
14: Yeah, yeah Rachel, 45-year-old Ricky Aldoretti was charged Monday with four counts related to the Jackie Robinson statue which was stolen from right here at McAdams Park nearly three weeks ago. Now investigators say their work is not done. They're promising more arrests will be made
20: soon. Hopefully this is a testament to all who might think about doing something like this
19: in the future.
14: Wichita City Councilman Brandon Johnson commends police for their work on the Jackie Robinson statue case.
19: The Wichita Police Department works pretty quickly. Uh, they do
20: great work and uh, you would be found if you did something like that.
14: 45-year-old Ricky Alderetti was charged Monday with felony theft of over $25,000, aggravated criminal damage to property, identity theft, and making false information. But police say they're confident this was not a hate crime.
13: We believe this theft was motivated by the financial gain of scrapping common metal.
14: But Executive Officer Lieutenant Aaron Moses says they can't reveal Aldretti's role in the crime.
13: That'll come out through the court process with
14: DA Bennett's office. However investigators do know there were at least three people involved and they promise more arrests will be made soon. Our detectives remain committed to gathering
13: information to identify and charge all individuals involved in the theft and the destruction of the Jackie Robinson statue.
14: League 42 Executive Director Bob Lutz says the arrest provides him some closure, but he hopes a happy ending is still to come.
1: The response to this from uh, Wichitans and Americans has been overwhelming. I get calls still today from national outlets as well as you guys. This was a really black cloud, but it has a really stark silver lining to it.
14: Now, police say Alderetti was arrested back on February 1st. That was five days after the statue was stolen, then charged in the statue case this Monday. Again, it's unclear what his role was in the statue's theft, and we also don't know. Uh, whether he was involved in that trash can fire last month at Garvey Park, where pieces of the statue were found.
16: Your favorite WWE superstars return to at Oh yeah!
18: Your favorite yeah, WWE superstar Today's return the to day, ATT <laughs> Stadium <laughs> for WWE.
14: Today's not the day, Jesse. SummerSlam.
16: Jesse Winter Solstice. No, read the Spring room. Spring Break. Read the room, Jesse. Read the room. Oh, my fault. My fault. Right.
9: Dr. Uh, Thomas Pitts is with me now. He's a board-certified neurologist. I wanted to ask you to join the program, um, Dr. Pitts, just to talk about the the statistics. I mean, the alarming nature of the number of people within this industry that died before 50 and 60. If it were any other industry, wouldn't there be like a five-alarm fire?
19: You know, Ashley, just like we're seeing in football, right, there's a whole group of people, like Vince McMahon that deal in essentially the trafficking of people. And we think of that in a sexual nature often, but it's also these players, these athletes, they are there to make money. There's a lot of money being changed, uh, changing hands here. And so, you know, there's also the willful employment aspect of this, that they are signing on to do it. But there are some rules in place to mitigate things. You must have a doctor on staff, et cetera. However, I think this should be like cigarettes. I mean, there should be a warning on the contract that says, You are headed towards CTE and big-time problems, and you're lucky if you're not.
9: I'm going to ask you about CTE in a hot minute, but first I want to just ask you about the nature of wrestling. Look, you, you sign up for a physical, grinding job, and it's your job to be thrown down. It's your job to be beaten up. It's your job to lose. A lot of this is scripted, right? But it's physical. that's not scripted. It hurts. And even if you're scripted to lose, you get those punches. So I'm curious about how much of that is responsible for these deaths, do you think, compared to, say, like the steroid use, or maybe big men uh, strain on their hearts the, the drugs they have to take repeatedly to, to help uh, kill the pain? What are your thoughts there?
19: It's definitely multifactorial. I mean, when you look at things like what you're signing up for, you're signing up for an extremely physical uh, job, like you said, and this one's particularly damaging because people associate concussion and CTE with head trauma. But I asked the medical students, can you get a concussion from being hit in the ankle? And yes, you can if it causes enough shearing force with the brain. The brain has gray gray matter and white matter. They're two different weights. They accelerate and deaccelerate at two different speeds and shear the nerves. That's a concussion. So just the flipping can cause a concussion. And, And what I would say is what's really killing these guys is not just the physical aspect. They are signing up for arguably one of the most toxic cultures in sports, where steroids are celebrated and encouraged, where alcohol use is used to mitigate pain, then later um, widespread use of oral painkillers with very little opportunity, like you said, for health insurance or, or med- breaks for medical care. These people are being used until they're dead.
9: The farmer in the Dell, the farmer in the Dell. Hi-ho, the Dario, the farmer in the Dell. It turns out the map is changing for agriculture, too. American farms are getting bigger. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's latest census report found that in 2022, the average farm was 463 acres. That's up about 5 percent from 2017 when the last census was taken. Meanwhile, the total number of farms fell by more than 7 percent in that time. This reflects a decades-long trend of consolidation in the industry. Small and mid-sized farms are struggling to compete, and larger operations are often ready to snap them up if they fail. Marketplace's
4: Savannah Marr has that story. The businesses that control our food supply have been consolidating for decades, and that includes farmers themselves, says Phil Howard, who studies food systems at Michigan State.
21: Policies have tended to just reinforce the idea that it's better to get big or get out.
4: Howard says federal crop insurance and subsidies and lending practices favor large operations and incentivize farmers to produce more and more to maintain the same income.
21: You know, it's it's described as a treadmill and the smaller medium-sized farmers are much more likely to fall off.
4: And if they do fall off, sell their land to bigger operations, which tend to grow just one or two commodity crops, says Ben Lilliston with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy.
7: We're getting less and less diversity in our food production.
4: Lilliston says that's part of how the U.S. ended up importing more food than we export three out of the last five years. And consolidation has consequences for rural economies when, say, eight ag employers become one.
16: That means fewer people in that community, fewer kids going to school, fewer small businesses in town that are servicing those farmers.
4: This trend also makes agriculture a more exclusive club. According to the census, 95% of American farmers are white, and on average, they're just over 58 years old. Now the barriers are so high. Dania Francis, an economist at UMass Boston, says generations of discriminatory lending practices have already separated Black farmers from millions of acres of land.
22: Larger farms, more capital needed, just like it's harder to buy into that great neighborhood for a house, it's much harder to buy into farm ownership today.
4: Especially if you don't own farmland to begin with. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace.
1: It's okay. See, the code doesn't say nothing against somebody going into business. You know, going into business is just going into business. That's all. Mm. If you can find a business to go into where you can make some money. I mean, you know, there are some black people who are in business. They run in little barbecue stands or something, you know, or a chuck wagon.
22: This is Press Play on 89.9 KCRW. I'm Madeline Brand. In a new short documentary that's nominated for an Oscar, we meet Arlo Washington. He lives in Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock is infamous for resisting desegregating its schools in 1957. Well, now the city is still divided racially, economically, and physically by a highway.
20: You know, when we cross our 630, you can tell a big difference. This neighborhood is the heart of the black community. There are no banks over here. and if You have about 30,000 community members over here.
23: Mm-hmm. You'd be hard pressed to find an ATM.
22: Arlo is showing us boarded up homes in his neighborhood. And then we cross the interstate and enter a predominantly white neighborhood.
23: And now we're going into the Heights. And in the Heights, I maybe 8,000 in population. But you got 14 banks, and you don't see a boarded-up house, not one.
22: The wealth gap. Arlo is trying to close it in his Little Rock neighborhood. He is a barber, and eight years ago, he started a small nonprofit loan organization in a converted shipping container. It was the first black-owned bank in Arkansas. The movie is called The Barber of Little Rock. John Hoffman co-directed it with Christine Turner, and John Hoffman joins me now. Welcome.
24: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
22: Great to have you. Well, let's talk about his place in the community as the owner of a barbershop and a a, a barbershop college, really. He trains people to become uh, barbers and hairdressers. And so tell us how he began doing that.
24: Arlo... Was raised uh, in Little Rock. His whole life has been in Little Rock. He had a, a single mother with two younger sisters. And when Arlo was 17, his mother died uh, of cancer and leaving Arlo with these two younger sisters and, you know, a really uh, an adulthood to figure out. And it was not long after that that he decided to become a barber, to have a steady income, and trained Um, sort of on the job. And in typical Arlo fashion, it wasn't long before he was able to open up his own barbershop and had the resources to do that and then bought another barbershop and started expanding the number of chairs that he was overseeing. And the barbershop is a very important um, community center in, in, in many ways. And people started asking Arlo, the way they have asked other barbers in the past, uh, for a loan Duke Arlo. Can you spot me a hundred dollars till I start this new job? Arlo, you know, I'm behind on my rent and I need a couple hundred dollars. You know, can you loan me a couple hundred dollars? And Arlo came to feel that and understand, um, in a way that wasn't clear to him until he achieved a certain amount of success. Uh, that these small loans were having a really outsized impact on people's lives, and people were paying him back, um, and but he started to really contemplate uh, this uh, unmet need in his community, this this credit gap in his community, and. Looked around and saw that there were really no financial institutions that these people could turn to. There, there really was other than a payday lender, that was going to really lead to um, a debt trap that people could not get out of. Um, people had nowhere else to turn to, and it. You know, Arlo is, uh, you know, an a incredibly smart entrepreneur and businessman, and he started thinking, you know, there's this credit gap that maybe he can fill if he opened up a loan fund. It was in that time that his uncle, who was a security guard in Chicago at a CDFI, a community development financial institution, who said, Arlo, you know, you should look into these CDFIs. And Arlo downloads the legislation, reads the legislation, and says, I can do this. And here we are.
22: How did he do it? How did he get the money to lend to other people?
24: So CDFIs uh, were created under the Clinton administration. So 30 years ago, Bill Clinton understood that there are communities in this country, whether for historical reasons or geographic reasons, are uh, cut out of the financial system, that especially in the black community, there is just a history of... Really, systemic and systematic exclusion of, from the financial system, and so Clinton understood this and created this program that was specifically set up, run by the the Fed, the Federal Reserve, to get capital into these underserved communities. So Arlo applied, um, developed capacity, um, a lot of mentorship that he you know he sought. And eventually, he got his first tranche of of capital from the Fed.
22: So he was doing this, applying for this money, figuring out how to run this nonprofit loan organization while also running his barber college? Exactly. Wow, busy guy. So (laughs) um, how did you meet him?
24: Well, we wanted to make a film looking at the racial wealth gap. And so the question was, well, how do we even begin? Where, where can we go to make uh, this gap real to people? And if possible, can we point towards solutions? We were, um, it was suggested by a number of people that we read a book called The Color of Money by a woman named Mirsa Baradaran. And it's uh, a look at the history of black banking in this country since Reconstruction. And her research shows that this has been a series of failures um, since Reconstruction, that um, any and almost all, save for one program, has by the government, has um, failed to help black communities develop um, sort of financial stability and independence. And the one program is the CDFI program that was created by Bill Clinton. It's the only thing that um, economists can point to as working. And you sort of look under the hood, and you see that these are what they call high-touch financial institutions, where they are working with a, with uh, populations that traditionally have been cut out of the financial systems. Um, so they do not have necessarily the, the the sort of credit scores that you need. They even might not be banked. They call the unbanked. And so you have to evaluate risk in very different ways. Okay. And we started learning about a lot of these these institutions and said, this might be a ripe opportunity, creative opportunity to embed in one of these institutions, follow the money. And we were pointed to a conversation uh, during COVID, a Zoom conversation between Bill Clinton and a woman named Donna Gambrell, who was the first director of the CDFI program 30 years ago. And it was a love fest between them. They know each other well. Um, and so we reached out to Donna and who is now the president of the National Association of Black Bankers. She runs an intermediary fund for CDFIs. And we said, can you suggest a black-owned CDFI? And she said, you know, there's this guy in Little Rock, Arkansas. His name is Arlo Washington. And she said, he's a barber and he runs a barber college and he has this shipping container that he's converted into the loan fund that's in the parking lot of the barber college. And we were like, I think we need to meet Arlo.:
22: <laughs> So you met, and from what I understand, you filmed for a year.
24: Correct. About 400 hours of footage.
22: Wow. And you really are a fly on the wall. And I want to play a clip that illustrates that Uh, here is an interaction between Arlo and one of his clients. This is a woman who's also a student at his barber college, a client of his uh, loan organization, which is called People Trust. And here is a conversation, an interaction that illustrates how they figure out how much money to lend someone.
20: While you were in the program, you
23: accessed uh, 3,500 small business loans. So maybe if we could extend that.
20: Mm-hmm.
7: So if we extend the 3,500 that we already gave you mm-hmm. to up to 10,000,
20: and we do it for two years, your payments feel be like 452 a month. How soon would you, would you need before you start making payments?
13: I would say a couple months just to get me going. So maybe we deferred your payments for 90 days. That'll help you to... Definitely. I appreciate
23: that. All right, cool.
22: Can you talk about how it works? Does he charge interest, and how does he determine whether someone is, I guess, "quote unquote" credit worthy?
24: Even though uh, People Trust is a nonprofit loan fund, it has to generate income to sustain itself. Arlo has to pay a staff of people, um, and he ideally wants to be growing the capital that he can recirculate, so he can um, make more and more loans. So there is interest, um, and that all that is regulated, and it is. Far, far less than if she had gone to a payday lender, which have been outlawed now in the state of Arkansas um, for that reason, that they create sort of onerous burdens on people. And what Arlo and his team are doing with anyone and everyone that's coming in the door is evaluating risk differently than you would do with a credit score, because a lot of the people that they are providing resources to don't have. Access to credit historically, their families don't have access to credit historically. This is the you know the consequence of generational um, lack of wealth and people not having um, collateral. They don't have a home that they can use as collateral for a loan. Um, They don't have the savings that they can point to, you know, as as a collateral. So. They have to evaluate risk in a different way. Are you employed? Do you have a job? What is your employment history? What is your paycheck every other week? And so that they'll look at all these other factors other than a credit score to evaluate the risk. They don't want to make a loan that is beyond a person's capacity to repay that loan. Ideally, with everyone, they want to start with a small loan that people will have no trouble repaying. Then say, okay... Your business is now growing, and you can expand that business, and we let's look at a larger loan. So Lynn Cola, who you heard in that scene, is doing great. She is has a, built up a clientele in the couple of years since she graduated from Was- Washington Barber College, and she is now a self-employed, successful you know, hairstylist.
22: And... He also makes personal loans, though, too, because there are scenes in your movie where he is talking to someone who has really nothing, like an unhoused person who really just needs money for food. And is, is that considered a loan?
24: So in those scenes where you are seeing people who are homeless, you are see- seeing people who are homeless because their home is burned down, um... There's just tremendous, they're undergoing you know, just tremendous stress. Arlo has the capacity because of the partnership that he's made with a lot of foundations to make grants. So in those instances, he is cutting someone a check. This is a grant. Here's a $1,000 grant. Here's a $500 grant. Here's a $1,500 grant. Because Arlo, the philanthropic community of Little Rock and Arkansas, understand that as a front-line sort of Defense against, you know, really um, unnecessary hardship. Arlo can be, you know, um, preventing people from falling between the cracks, literally, um, and sort of being lost. Um, and so, these are these are life saving grants that Arlo is able to make.
22: And. People pay the money back, the people who are getting loans for their businesses. And you have a statistic at the end of the movie that says 95% of the people pay back what they're loaned. How does that compare to the regular banking system?
24: I wish I could give you a national average for the national banking system, but every banker who has seen the film is shocked at at that 95% number. So it has to be considerably less than that.
22: Why aren't there more Arlo's?
24: Well, there are 1,500 CDFIs in the country. Hmm. So there are other Arlo's, and that's why we, it's one of the reasons why we thought that this is an important program to build awareness of. But Congress appropriates, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year to the CDFI program. The racial wealth gap as Arlo says in the beginning of the film, and it's, you know, it's a truth that he you know, states, is a trillion-dollar problem. So the few hundred million dollars that Congress is appropriating every year for the CDFI program is, is literally a drop in the bucket. So if this film, The Barber of Little Rock, can be used as an advocacy tool— uh, by people who are working to really narrow that racial wealth gap so that Congress appropriates more money for a program like this. Congress can appropriate more money for the CRA Fund, Community Reinvestment Act. Um, there's, a, there's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, Scott Green, who uh, in the very first scene you're describing of driving between these two neighborhoods of Little Rock that's divided by the interstate, um, Scott Green, who is the nephew of Ernest Green, one of the little, little Rock Nine, in that you know very important integration story that you also referenced, you know Scott Green says it's not a racial wealth gap; it's a racial wealth chasm, hmm. um, and uh, I think that he's absolutely right.
22: And will Arlo come with you to the Oscars?
24: You bet he is. <laughs>
22: Oh, that'll be great. Well, thank you so much for coming in today, and thank you for your movie.
24: Oh, thank you so much for shining a light on it. And good luck. Thank you.
22: John Hoffman co-directed the Oscar-nominated short documentary The Barber of Little Rock, which you can watch on YouTube or at newyorker.com. You're dirt.
18: We think you're dirt, Paul. Who is we? The West. All the superpowers, everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt, they think you're dumb, you're worthless.
25: I'm afraid I
26: don't understand what you're saying, sir. Oh, come on, don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands.
16: You could own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger.
13: You're an African. And now we shift our focus to Africa, where violent clashes have rocked the Democratic Republic of Congo's capital city of Kinshasa. Demonstrations took place outside embassies of several Western nations and the offices of the United Nations. Congolese supporters accused the West of supporting Rwanda, which allegedly backs the M-23 rebellion. The M-23 rebellion was an armed conflict allegedly supported by Rwanda, which ended with a peace agreement in 2013. Now, M-23 fighters have made strategic advances threatening the peace treaty with the Democratic Republic of Congo. Rwanda has dismissed all accusations. Here's the full report.
25: Residents in the Democratic Republic of Congo's capital city, Kinshasa, woke up to violent protests and clashes. Demonstrators burned tires outside the embassies of several Western nations. Protests also took place outside the office of the United Nations. The Congolese are accusing the West of supporting Rwanda. But why are they protesting against the West because of their neighbours to the East? That's because of the M23 rebellion. Here's a background to M23 and the tensions between DR Congo and Rwanda. The M23 rebellion was an armed conflict in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The ethnic rebel group comprised of Tutsis. They picked up arms in 2012 by claiming that they wanted to protect their identity from the government in DR Congo. The fighting left thousands dead and millions displaced. DR Congo accused Rwanda of supporting and aiding the M23 rebellion. Because Rwanda is a majoritarian Tutsi nation. Tensions flared and violent clashes became common in the eastern Congolese city of Goma. But in 2013, a peace agreement was signed and the M23 either surrendered or fled to Rwanda. Now M23 has become active again and have made advances towards Goma city. This brings us to today. The Congolese are unhappy with M23 making a comeback. And they're blaming the West for igniting a war-like situation.
21: They say one thing in their assemblies, international communities, European assemblies, but deep down they practice other things. So we have decided that we Congolese will take our matters into our own hands. We will bypass what has been planned by their lying law and we will take charge of our problem. We warn the international community not to interfere in our affairs anymore.
22: We are claiming our rights. France and the United States are fostering the war in the eastern DRC by supporting the rebellion. A country like Rwanda cannot fight against the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We are marching. We are not breaking or destroying people's property. But the head of the police is sending his officers to
24: chase us away.
25: A conflict that had once died down is making a comeback after a decade. Rwanda has denied all accusations. Rwanda says that the M23 Rebellion is an internal matter of the DR Congo, and the mineral-rich eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo is facing a crisis once again.
23: That's right, we move into to Mississippi, and you know how that spelled, M-I, crooked letter, crooked letter, I, crooked letter,
5: crooked letter, I.
0: Humpback. the center of Lexington, Mississippi is an old-fashioned square ringed with businesses. A beauty supply store, an eye doctor, a weekly newspaper. Every so often, a police car creeps slowly around the block. It's an unsettling reminder of what county residents allege has been going on with the town's police.
24: You're talking about uh, mentally ill patients. Being beat on side of the road. If
7: you get pulled over, chances are you gonna get locked up or you may mm-hmm. get jacked up at the same time.
23: My time staying there at the jail was like a bus stop. Like you saw so many people in and out. I heard so many. You too? what you do, huh?
0: That's Cardell Wright, Francine Jefferson, and Peter Reeves, who all have deep roots in this majority black county. Some residents brought these concerns to the police department. Civil rights attorneys filed lawsuits. The claims brought in the Justice Department, shining a bright spotlight on an unlikely place. Only about 1,600 people live in Lexington. These investigations have happened in cities as big as Memphis, or at big agencies like the Louisiana State Police. Federal investigators are now pouring through records, looking at video, and interviewing people. And these reviews often lead to big changes in police departments. But Lexington feels different. One area resident I spoke with compared the police department to the mob. Cardell Wright, an organizer and president of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, says he's waiting to see what will happen.
24: It was a a ray of sunshine for the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office to open the pattern and practice investigation, but we need to get to the finish line.
0: Another organizer, Francine Jefferson,
7: is pretty skeptical. For some reason, it just seems that we're not going to get the justice. That's how it feels to me deep down inside. It's like there are too many people...
0: Over the past couple years, the two held meetings and news conferences. They worked to get people out of jail. They went to court and met with officials about Lexington policing. Jefferson is trying to stay optimistic, but the region's struggles fuel her doubts. We've got two
7: Mississippis. Mm. There's one for... Um, people of color and, and poor, that's that's kind of together. And then there's uh, one for the status quo, those who have, the have and have nots. That's where we are. There's crime too. It's funny. In Lexington, people told
0: me they're worried about robberies and shootings. This just isn't a place where people say they want to ban or defund the police. Take retired educator and activist
7: Sherry Reeves. I believe in law and order, okay? I believe in policing, but policing the right way, without harassment.
0: I meet Sherry and her son Peter in a cozy wood-paneled den with deer and geese etched on the walls. Peter is a plaintiff in a civil rights lawsuit against the department and local officials. Sherry Reeves connects Lexington's problems to officer misconduct all over the state, like in Rankin County, where several officers recently pled guilty to criminal charges. She hopes the investigation can be an example that can lead to change.
7: I don't want my child, my grandchild, growing up scared of the police.
0: What the way forward looks like wasn't always clear. Not very many people I spoke to could tell me about specific changes they want to see. But one former officer and whistleblower agrees things could be a lot different.
14: How you guys doing?
0: Robert Lee Hooker Jr. recorded Lexington's former police chief, his boss, allegedly using racist slurs and bragging about shooting people. The recording set off a media firestorm. It drew international attention to Lexington. Knowing that my mom and my daddy picked
1: cotton, I couldn't let it go.
0: Hooker left his job. Now a county sheriff's deputy, his living room is a tribute to his law enforcement career. A flak jacket, scattered ID badges. One of his Lexington police paychecks sits on his coffee table. Wait, how much did you say officers were making? The
26: last time, the last time I heard, their pay rate was ten sixty three. It might have gone up to eleven something, but that still ain't no money, baby. That ain't no
1: real money.
0: The lack of resources in Holmes County is even felt by law enforcement. For this officer, this area is complicated. It's a place that needs good cops to thrive. But where people ask his permission to drive through town, afraid of being thrown in jail.
20: You know, um. Uh...
1: Some cops be cops for the wrong reasons. They cops for the wrong reason, baby girl. They did.
0: Lexington's mayor and city attorney declined an interview request citing litigation. Its police chief didn't return inquiries. The Justice Department plans to release a report if investigators find a pattern of violations of people's rights. If they don't find anything, they'll say that publicly. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Kat Stromquist.
22: I call it the missing white woman syndrome. (laughs)
6: If there's a missing white woman, we're going to cover that every day.
5: It's true.
17: You're watching Alaska's News Source.
0: I in no way want to dishonor the voice of the victims of sexual violence or the Alaskan Native voice who has been crying out for justice for so long.
1: That was Representative Sarah Vance apologizing on the House floor this afternoon, minutes after the House minority accused her of making appalling comments about missing and murdered indigenous people last week during a tribal affairs committee meeting. Joe Kedot has reached out to Representative Vance as well as lawmakers who were asking for an apology.
21: Joe joins us now with what happened and why. Joe? Mike, this all stems from a tribal affairs committee meeting on February 7th. Mm -hmm. That's last Wednesday in Juneau. When, after more than an hour of testimony that day by experts and what they call a crisis of Alaska Native and American Indian women being sexually assaulted and a wide disparity between indigenous people being assaulted compared to the general population, that's when the House Coalition says Representative Vance made what they called appalling and offensive comments. Minutes after we got a press release early this afternoon from the Coalition asking Representative Vance to apologize. She then apologized on the House floor a few minutes later, which we just saw a few minutes ago. Representative Maxine Dybert of Fairbanks, who's also Alaska native, says she's appalled about Representative Vance's comments.
5: My reflection on the statement was that it was a step forward towards healing. I mean, us as legislators have the opportunity to change these numbers. And she has not come to me for an apology my door is open if she wants to, pro, you know, if she wants to come talk to me about this issue. My door is open.
21: Last week, especially since it was during a week of presentations, including that indigenous women are more likely to be assaulted than white women. Here's part of what Vance said at last week's meeting. Dibert says Vance's comments were hurtful and disheartening. For full context, here's part of what Representative Vance said last week.
2: What I continue to hear in this committee over and over again is if you are the only one, and I know that's not your heart, but I ask that when you come and present, that you remember that you have white sisters who are going through the same thing, and they don't feel they have justice either.
21: I've reached out to Representative Vance for comment, and she sent me a a text message right before we went to air reiterating the apology were heard on the floor, and then going on to say this. I was unaware of the press release until right before my afternoon committee. My goal is to bring healing and justice to all Alaskans in humility and respect and in no way diminish the voices of Alaskan Native victims. It is sad that the actions of the minority prove that they are not interested in working together for that cause. And we'll continue to follow this for you tonight. Back to you, Mike. I'm
5: getting in the elevator, and these two... High school white boys tried to get on with me, and I just dove off. I said, y'all ain't killing me. I am scared of young white boys. If you white and under 21, I am running for the hill.
9: What the hell is wrong with these white kids shooting up the school? The mass shooting plot at Marymont High School is our top story tonight. We thank you for joining us at 6. I'm Tanya O'Rourke.
16: And I'm Craig McKee. Hamilton County Prosecutor Melissa Powers says a 14-year-old Marymont High School student had a hit list. They also say he was conspiring with an adult out of state to carry out that would be attack
9: so we are continuing our team coverage at six o'clock first getting over to WCPO 9 news reporter Andrew Rowan Andrew how close the call was this
13: Tanya and Craig this was apparently a very close call on that hit list eight students and one teacher and we don't know why they were on that list the student was apparently going to use a gun in his home and he has a plan to carry. he had a plan to carry it out in a number of days. We want to warn you some of the text messages we're about to show you are disturbing.
0: It was an obvious um, threat. There was no doubt that this was going to occur.
13: Hamilton County Prosecutor Melissa Powers has the text messages that she says proves it. The 14 year old writes, I'd prefer to gas the place, erase the cameras, kill the people we need slash want to kidnap the attractive ones to rape them. The reply, Yeah, sounds like a plan. The person who sent that reply is between the ages of 22 and 24. They're texting from a Colorado area code. Powers didn't say if they've been arrested.
0: AB was charged with a conspiracy to commit aggravated murder. The prosecutor's office is asking that AB's case be bound over to the Court of Common Pleas for trial as an adult.
13: There's discussion of taking the cameras offline and taking care of the front office. The 14-year-old writes, "He needs his hit list dead really soon." The other person says, "I got you, bro." One of these texts, the last slide said, "Can this be done tomorrow?" That was on January 17th. I guess alluding to January 18th. So, is it possible that this almost wasn't wasn't caught and this went not happen?
5: It is possible.
13: The team was arrested Wednesday after a classmate saw the plan on paper at school and reported it.
1: Suspect and his father. That's the only people in the, in the home, and um, we did uh,
13: have. Uh, some cooperation from the father. The student planned to access a gun in his home. Could there be charges against the parents?
1: I'm not going to comment on that either.
13: A close call that could have ended in tragedy.
0: But there's no doubt in anyone's mind in this investigation that this was a joke, that this was something that may just was a fantasy.
13: The 14-year-old appeared in juvenile court today. He has had no prior contact with the court. If he is tried and convicted as an adult, he could face life in prison. Tanya and Craig. All right, Andrew Rowan reporting that side of the story tonight. You know, some are shifting focus to another
16: student, though. The one, officials say, actually stopped this potential school shooting from happening.
9: His father is calling him a hero. Valerie Lyons joining us now. Valerie, he shared his emotional reaction with you.
15: Tanya, Zach Swallen says his son, Boom, has a heart of gold. He's selfless, someone who would put the lives of others before his own. And that is exactly what he did Tuesday night when Boom mustered up the courage to call his dad. Swallen says that is a conversation he won't soon forget. Something unimaginable.
23: I could tell something was on his mind, something was pressing on him.
15: That's why his son picked up the phone and called him.
23: Kid uh, um, had the firearms and had a very elaborate uh, plan and had every intention of carrying out that plan.
15: Zach Swallin says a 14 year old student confided in his son, Boom. He had a kill list, had access to a gun, and was going to pull the trigger at school. Swallin says the student warned Boom not to tell anyone or he would kill him, but his son did anyway.
23: He literally told me that he didn't care if, uh, if he got killed, just as long as he was able to protect his classmates, and that's just so selfless and so awesome.
15: Boom didn't just tell Swallen because he's his dad. Swallen knows officers on the Fairfax Police Force, and Boom wanted something done fast.
23: And they took swift action and uh, addressed it because the threat was, you know, imminent and, you know, was promised to take place at some day this week.
15: He's proud of his son, and so is Bishop Sonny James, who stood by Swallen's side Thursday.
18: This is real. And it was Mary this week.
15: What district is next week? Coincidentally, just weeks before this alleged threat, James and Swallen say they were working on a plan of their own, building a community group of advocates to be a guiding voice for troubled youth. Where are these children out here? 10 years old, 14 years old, 15, 17 years old,
18: that are one decision away from ruining the rest of their lives and ending the lives of other innocent people. But at this school,
15: that possible threat was stopped Wednesday, all because a 15 year old stepped up and did the right thing.
23: And I could not be more proud of him. And I mean, he's a hero for what he did.
15: Boom Swallen saw something, so he said something. Now Swallin says Boom forgives this other student, and he does too. Swallin says he is actually deeply concerned for this boy right now about his mental state. He says he hopes he gets help soon and one day can rebound from all of this. For for now, reporting live outside Marymount High School, Valerie Lyons, WCPO, 9 News.
16: Valerie, thank you so much there. You know, in the news, we often report on stories such as this a lot of times, really, after it's too late, after it's already occurred.
9: We see the tragedy, we see the aftermath, we show that to you. But the situation ended with no lives lost. Marymount Superintendent Stephen Estep says the process they teach their students worked.
13: That message has been very consistent. If you see something, say something. And that's exactly what what happened. Um, And and this is a a success story, um, as has been shared, um, that what was supposed to happen, happened. And it sounds like we stopped something very, very tragic
20: from happening as a result of that.
9: And I can only imagine that every parent in Marymont, maybe all over the tri-state, is thinking tonight, we are so lucky.
20: Right.
16: And you, you often wonder, especially probably from a superintendent standpoint, law enforcement, they repeat themselves over and over and over and wonder, are students listening? And clearly in this case, that message was loud oh, yes, and clear and... Uh, for sure. So, of course, this story is still developing with the connection out in Colorado potentially. So,
5: you know, these events that keep coming up instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we, that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it uh, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health but also gun control and we have to begin to understand I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism white supremacy the gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious the answer the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated By black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody get a copy of the ISIS papers and read.
27: Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas joins me now to talk about all the mayhem at Union Station on Wednesday and what kind of progress police are making to apprehend those responsible. Mayor, thanks for taking time with us this morning. Always glad to have you with us. It is great to be with you today. You know, you must be sick about all this after such a great parade on Wednesday.
11: You know, it was a beautiful day. We started yeah. the day together here on UpToDate. Yes, we We did. saw hundreds of thousands of Kansas Citians. And, uh, you know, my heart breaks primarily for the young people. I'll be going to a high school later today and not a big press event, but just to see how the world has changed since I graduated from high school 22 years ago, which mm. seems longer all the time. But to to see what kids live with, what they know. And I think the most arresting thing that I have seen myself and read in other reports, is that the kids knew better what to do than all of us grown-ups did. They knew active shooter drills. They know in America where parades and schools and churches are places where there's a shooting risk, and it's incredibly heartbreaking for all of us. Hmm.
27: Where were you exactly when the shooting began, and who were you with?
11: I was inside Union Station. Um, I was actually fairly close to a number of Chiefs players and others. I would call it a VIP section. You hear a noise ring out and then you see people running. And I think you have a very brief, oh my God, moment and then we just take off sprinting. I got separated. I had in in my party, my wife and my mother with me. We got separated in the mayhem. Um, I ended up running outside, which was fortunate for me because it went the other direction. Then we ran towards police cars and other emergency equipment. My wife and mother were, were holed up inside. Fortunately, safe and barricaded, but at that point, conversing with Chiefs players, Chiefs, wives and girlfriends, um, any number of people and a number of children in just a completely horrifying circumstance. Uh, I don't want to live that again. And what I've shared a few times now, I I grew up in some tough neighborhoods in Kansas City, Mm -hmm. Uh, lived into them until recently. I've never been more scared in my life than I was on Wednesday. And that's something that I think uh, is really harrowing for not just me, but probably most people who were there. Wow,
27: how are your wife and mother doing?
11: Shaking up, shaking up I a bet. lot. Uh, there have been a, a decent number of tears. Uh, the first things first, you you feel like a terrible person because I, you know, was separated. Right. Fortunately, uh, in it. and I want to thank there's an officer KCPD and Officer Ferber. Who helped them get to safety, and and I haven't been able to write them or find them yet, but I will. But you know they're shaken up, and I think primarily because of what this means for our child. Our, my my son's about three. We have another one on the way, and um, this just doesn't seem right. Hmm. You know something that I grew up knowing was that for the most part, and, and Kansas City has violence issues. I'm not minimizing it or anything like that. But you know when I grew up, a few blocks from Prospect and a few other streets, it was usually that. If you avoided trouble, trouble didn't come to you. Right. That's what my mom taught me, and that was much of my life. The thing about mass shooting incidents, and I will just say it: the guns that people are talking about, and I'm not getting ahead of the stories, but but there are photos of AR-15s. Right. There were sounds of of semi-automatic gunfire. Right. Those were the sorts of things that were around, and when you have those around, it puts all of us at risk, all of us. And so the 1990s advice I got from my mom of You know what? Get home quick. Don't get into drugs. Don't do this. Hang out with the right people. It doesn't seem like that's something that applies to avoiding a mass shooting today in America. And that's something that we all, I think, have to fight to change. You
27: know, two teenagers were in custody yesterday evening. Police are saying that an argument of some kind triggered all this. What more can you tell us this morning about what caused this mass shooting to take off in the way it did?
11: You know, I do think that we need to have uh, more discussion about what causes the dispute itself. This, you know, this isn't your traditional bar fight, which is what many of us would think of with a dispute. A lot of the disputes that are facing our community, and, and we'll need to glean more information on this, are ones that stem from sometimes years-long back-and-forth battles between um, rival factions, people who felt disrespected, families, anything under the sun. So that's one part of what I think we need to look at, but to, to be less technical and, frankly, just more real. You know, I, I get my my negative people and I I got a percentage of the city that don't like uh my contribution to public service and many of them are saying, you know, we've created this society where uh these folks are, are seeing that there's a revolving door for them and all of that. Maybe that's true, except for juveniles. Mm-hmm. These are these are kids too. These are kids that, you know, twenty twenty protests were likely middle schoolers. They aren't people who've been reading the Kansas City Star getting updated and saying, oh, my gosh, I can only get an 18-month sentence for this or that. Right. So the real thing we need to look at is actually where is the tremendous failure in their lives? And before people jump on it, and I hate debates like this. There are so many people who are either or. But my thing is this. Yes, we need to invest in particularly the lives of so many of our young boys in our cities. But the guns are also a problem. If there were not semi-automatic weapons, not that many people would have been hit. Full stop. And if there were a way that we had intervened in the lives of 10 and 11-year-olds so that we were training them, teaching them how to handle conflict, what to avoid, doing the very thing that my mom was telling me in the 1990s, then we might have a woman alive today. And we might have said, wow, what a cool parade and we'd be giggling about Travis Kelsey singing country music. Yeah. And that's where I think we need to go as a city going forward.
27: You know, Mayor, I'm struck by Governor Parsons' comments. He's going to join us later on in this program. After the shooting, he said, we can't let some thugs and criminals just take over and ruin what happened. I gather that's not quite your assessment of what happened that day.
11: I have respect for the governor. Uh, we get along well. I, I disagree strongly with uh, how he would describe that situation. I, I certainly do think this was criminal activity. It was lawlessness, and I think that uh, that's troubling. But thugs is a dog whistle in the most classic sense, and I have seen this dog whistle time and again. There's this kind of giant conservative theory on social media now that the reason that monk shots haven't been shown is because the purported defendants are black, and if it were a white defendant, we would have just shown them. It is absolutely preposterous. There are protections to juveniles. Our city has a gun violence problem. I'm concerned with gun violence committed by blacks, whites, Latinos, anybody under the sun. I grieve for victims, the majority of whom, by the way, were black in this city last year of gun violence. And when you have semi-automatic gunfire, when you have weapons of war that are able to kill and injure and maim lots of people, including – what is it, nine children? then I think it is fair for us to say that that is an issue that needs to be discussed rather than just acting like, you know, what the heck, it's just a few bad people. We had 850 cops out there the other day. We had, uh, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of cameras and snipers and and anything under the sun.
27: And none of that stopped anything.
11: None of it stopped it.
27: Are you anticipating further arrests here, Mayor?
11: I think there is an active investigation. I, uh, I I think when you look at the the volume of shots, it would stand to reason that perhaps there is more involvement. And I think KCPD will continue to do this this work. But um, you know, I think what's going to solve this long term for us is a realistic conversation about about the guns that are killing our community, my community. It's it's why I could. Feel safer in 1999 living on a street where people actually did get killed than I did the other day outside of Union Station. And I think we have to have a real conversation about, yeah, I'm, I'm a man who proposed a 30% pay increase for PD. But how about a thirty percent pay increase for social workers in this community? Yeah, a thirty percent increase in their total number, so that middle school kids actually are raised in some way to know how to address violence.
27: You know, you're mentioning conflict. You're mentioning some gun control matters here. You got an ordinance passed a year or two ago that bars the transfer of firearms and ammunition to minors without permission from the minor's parent or guardian, as well as you know the idea of discharging firearms in the city. Why wasn't that ordinance enough to stop this, and how effective has that law proved to be?
11: I think the question is always about how much enforcement are we doing. What I look forward to having a conversation with KCPD about is how often are we citing some of these ordinances, and if we are not, then why not? We have passed ordinances since I became mayor relating to the possession of firearms by domestic violence offenders, the possession of firearms by minors, and I think that uh, thus far they have rarely been used or invoked. It is one thing, and I hear it all the time, to to wax poetic about what different things a county prosecutor might or might not do. And by the way, I've talked to her a number of times this week and have great respect for her and her service. But it's another thing, not in certain ways, to use the tools that are at the disposal of law enforcement to get guns out of the hands of people who would do harm in our community. Well, if that's the case, Mayor,
27: why would any further laws uh, out of Jefferson City have any impact if the laws we have right now aren't being enforced? Because Republicans are already raising that issue.
11: Yeah, I mean, if you use that logic, then you shouldn't have laws against fentanyl beating anything under the sun. I mean you you have a, a criminal enforcement regime so that you can use it. Now if they're not being enforced, I would actually suggest that's another argument for local control of the police, to make sure that every municipal ordinance, even if it enters into the gun space, is one that is getting followed up as quickly as possible. As you know I'm a one fifth vote on that board, but nonetheless that's something that I will continue to push. I think council and mayor in this city are trying to say in every way possible we will do all we can to get guns out of the hands of people. But on the uh, why do we need laws in Jefferson City, the problem right now is that Jefferson City has made lawful the possession of firearms in any number of places, and it's how we end up with young men in some situations with an AR-15 concealed in their pants and pulling them out in certain situations.
27: Mayor, I'm running a little short of time. Let me just hit two quick points with you here. What does this say about our ability to hold the next parade when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl next year?
11: I think I'm going to be a realist about it. And there's part of me that says we can never do a parade again. All needs to be at Arrowhead Stadium, but that's preposterous. We're going to have a St. Patrick's Day parade in a month. We're going to continue to have community events. We'll have security there. But I think all of us, parents, regular people, friends, families, will be more concerned. I think we will get back to a normalcy, but the new normalcy in America is absolutely, for lack of a better term, all messed up, that we have to fear for our lives and potential shootings in any event in the future.
27: And, Mayor, do you have a message for Governor Parson, who, again, will be joining us in about 10 minutes?
11: St. Louis and Kansas City have the highest black homicide rate. In the, I'm sorry, the state of Missouri has the highest black homicide rate in the country. We are losing generations of black men. What will we do to stop it? Yeah. That's my question. Yeah. And that's something that I think we have the power to do.
27: That's Kansas City, Missouri, Mayor Quentin Lucas. Mayor, sure appreciate your time. I'm glad your family's safe and uh, I always appreciate you spending, spending a little time with us. Thank you. And God be with all of you.
26: Super Bowl, the middle school, the grocery store, the church, the Walmart. Great equalizer, Dr. Welzing told us. Context of white supremacy, worthless Negro from Virginia, Gus T. Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully, to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date Saturday February 17 2024 so I have been told still Negro History Month our weekly compensatory call in not for spectators dial in let us know if you have thoughts, observations counter racist suggestions and or questions number to dial 605-313-5164 the code 564 four, pounds press star 61 if you would like to participate I will share some of our listeners many of them actually over the years have told us about the many shenanigans and elements of sabotage uh, that have disrupted uh, some listeners ability to dial in during the live program if the phone number is troublesome which it is even for me from time to time you can always download the free app free conference call HD uh, you can just uh, and just add app on the end do a search uh, I'll link it as well on social media uh, but it is free. It has worked all over the world. We've had guests from different parts of the world and certainly in the States as well. Uh, works the same as a phone. You'll see it. Uh, you can dial in the same number and you can put in a name, handle, nickname, what have you. Uh, like if it was retired firefighter, you could put that in. Bam, you could dial in that way on your phone. That might work better for some folks if you uh, or if they try and slip some old slick charges in right, on you for dialing in. I've heard that one too. Uh, and also... You can use the web-based Vope uh, app, or it's not an app, uh, but it is web-based. You just go to the web page. You don't have to download anything, and same thing. Like I said, it will look like a telephone dial pad, and you just put in the same number, boop, 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 put in the password, and connect that way as well. One you can download onto your phone. The other you can use, uh, just put in the web page, should be a free conference call HD. that's V-O-I-P dialer and you'll see the link for it also free works well some folks I think are using it now that is other options if there's a snag problem and you're trying to call in the normal way via the phone line usual suspects invest if you think the cows is constructive 15 years Uninterrupted original counter-racist broadcasting in spite of extraordinary obstacle, uh, despised globally, sabotaged daily, persevere nonetheless. Hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com. Listener supported counter racist radio. You'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner directly beneath the button. You'll see the links for cash app Venmo PayPal much obliged to all of our investors over 15 years throughout the known universe who have kept us on the air. Hopefully we've been worthy of your time and energy Uh, As always, you can share the broadcast. Let people know we are on the air if you think the cows is constructive. That's it. A few things before we get to folks who dialed in. I think the lone fatality at this point from the shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade in Kansas City, Missouri. uh, Lisa Lopez Galvan, I think she would be classified as non-white. I haven't seen every single picture of her throughout her life uh, on the planet, but I think she'd be classified as a non-white uh, female, non-white, non-black. Folks can let me know if you've seen her again. Lisa Lopez Galvan. Let see, you know, what you think, but just more shootings, uh, any sort of public event, I probably would have to think about it because they've had, I mean, pretty much everything that you can think of, uh, parades, parties, that's, you know, cliche now to go shoot up the party. Uh, like I said, the grocery store, church, anywhere where, you know, more than five people, bowling alley, man, eh, might be a good idea to, you know, wear the exits, be alert anything seems like it's getting rowdy time to go and even being alert you know about where you're but I mean the grocery store that seems like it would be pretty tame right church even pretty tame school is supposed to be pretty easy one but eh, system of white supremacy there is no such thing as safety tragic illustrations in many ways Uh, this week in fact They had the shooting at the parade and that for me, even though now context or put this in quotes, even though there was only one fatality, that shooting had resonance for me because that last report that was uh, the mayor, Quentin Lucas, who is a black male victim of white supremacy uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. I have been listening to him even though I am literally thousands of miles from Kansas City Missouri and I actually have been to Kansas City Missouri in my lifetime and even then I was super confused about racism but even then
16: it's like
5: hmm,
26: I do not think I'm trying to hang out here <laughs> we need to uh we need to ride anyway uh they have been having astronomical levels of violence, gun violence, and particularly targeting black males, which he said. But I've been listening to Mayor Lucas at least since through 2020. My intimate connection with Mayor Quentin Lucas in April, specifically, of 2020 mayor lucas said you know hey the rona is a big deal that i think was just at that point it was a few weeks into covid being in the u.s and you know some places shutting down and all the rest of it uh and mayor lucas kansas city missouri says let's mask up try to keep people safe let's put our masks on oh my goodness what's that term white defiance Said, look here, nigger mayor, you don't tell me to put on. I mean, who do you think you are, nigger man? We will lynch you right now. I think they put that in his phone. We will take you outside city hall and string you up right now. Who do you think you are? Tell us to put on. I'll put some nigger in the white. Oh, oh, the other. white. Define. This is at the beginning. Of what I said, April of 2020. It had just started. Everybody was confused, like, what's going to happen? Oh, my God. Let's err on the side of caution. Eh. Nigga, you don't tell me what to do. I posted this on old Mark Zuckerberg way before he got so-called grilled in the Senate. I posted this on old rotten Facebook way before people ditched. I posted in 2020, And I posted exactly what they said. And I didn't, uh, this wasn't just me running off at the mouth. I posted a news report, I believe, from the Kansas City Star, because this was widely covered in Kansas City News, KMOV, Kansas City Star. I think St. Louis Public Radio covered this as well. But it was widely covered. I posted one of the local Kansas news sites, white-dominated even, threatened to lynch the mayor, called him a Negro, said we will take you out and string you up and they flagged me oh Mark Zuckerberg flagged me hate speech not allowed shame on you Gusty and deleted my group page I said I'm trying to share what happened to black mayor I didn't call him a nigger they, it's in the news article it's in the news article they got it on the Kansas City Star I tried to appeal they ignored me I said man For sharing about the mayor. No count Mark Zuckerberg. No fan of him. Anyone had met him. Then I continue following Quentin Lucas, Mayor Quentin Lucas. He stays in the news, gets reelected. They're going through about COVID 19, all the rest of it, all the other wacky things uh, happening in the Kansas City area, the serial killers, and all the rest of it. Wacky times. We had Toriano Porter. On the program, black male journalist at the Kansas City Star. We had him as a guest on the program just last summer, August 2023. Toriano Porter is a black male father. He has two black male children. Only one of them is alive, shot and killed in Missouri. Mayor Lucas, he said, we are losing generations of black males. Toriano Porter's son is one in that number. But we talked to him. At that time, in fact, Mayor Lucas was trying to pass restrictions to make it a little bit more difficult for children, people in general, to get their hands on firearms and we got to do something we got to do something. We got all this gun violence in Missouri. We got all these black males dying. We got to do something. There's no way. Who do you think? it? Same thing that they said with the COVID mask. And the, who is they? More powerful white people. Who do you think you are? <laughs> you got this uppity nigga. Look here, nigga Lucas. You don't tell us to put on a mask. You don't tell me about no social dis- distancing. And you definitely... You are out of your cotton picker nigger mind. You think you're going to take my firearm? You're going to take my equal? <laughs> you have lost your nigger mind. I'm going to help you find it, though. You're not taking no guns from us, and that's that. And then we get here. That's the picture that I put up. I normally, when promoting for our weekly compensatory call-in, I'll take an image or something from this week. I didn't do that this week. I took the image of him consoling black people after another black dude privileged shot and killed last year in Kansas City, Missouri. That's what I posted and it was white people saying no. Same thing reminded me a little bit of President Obama after Sandy Hook when I started saying <clears throat> White people do not care about children. In fact, just this week, if you watched the news after the shooting, so Sunday, Kansas City wins the Super Bowl. And I mean, how embarrassing is that? Really, how American so-called is that? Super Bowl on Sunday, by Wednesday that has been drowned out because we are letting rounds off Pat Mahomes gotta hide, snatch the Super Bowl trophy and hide under the table they got so many stories of the coach Andy Reid Pat Mahome boy, Travis Kelsey man if uh, what, Taylor Swift that white woman had been there jamming with old Travis and the shots rang out and old white woman Taylor Swift could have been, oh my god ugh, ugh they'd blame that on Mayor Lucas for sure but I mean how? we're at the Super Bowl man we won the Super Bowl back to back man we got our biracial mulatto quarterback man we out here turning y'all shit great equal. that is white culture and in fact I don't even want to hear no nonsense because that's what the Super Bowl that's what the NFL is all about brain damage you go and knock and beat and jab and get them steroids and yeah, brain death. That's what all this is about. They say Pat Mahomes he drops back in the shotgun. That's what all this is about. Dr. Welsing wrote a whole chapter on that. Didn't she write that? One and the same. Any oodles? let's see. I'm going to go back to the beginning just because Mayor Lucas, as I said, special connection. I'm sure he would never waste time with a worthless Negro such as myself. But, man, I have to keep an eye just for lots of reasons on the rest of his career. I'm even surprised. Like, how do you keep getting elected? Talking about, like, gun restrictions and making white people mask. Like, he, he said it's a good number of people who are not pleased with his contributions to public service. I know. I know. I bet I know the racial demographics of the people who are not pleased with you. You we'll have to see when he's up for election again even if he wants to run. He even paused. He said he has a child on the way like his wife is pregnant. Can you imagine the stress that she's under? Like, oh my God. <laughs> like, they are gunning down black people all the time. My husband's out at the Super Bowl parade and they're shooting there. I don't know if she was there or not, she could have been there too. Yee. And then they're texting, We're gonna lynch you, nigga, you're talking about we're gonna let you change out and lynch you Oh my God. <laughs> like, oh my God. Man. It would just be uh just sit in the house, don't watch T V. Don't watch anything about the Chiefs, don't watch the parade, don't answer the phone. Don't answer the phone. Don't answer the phone. Just <laughs> just get a book. Yes. Get a book. Read and chill. Listen to some soft music soothing. Don't answer the phone. Don't answer the phone. Sending uh, healing energy to uh, his wife, child on the way. Man. Uh, let's see. They st- we started, we heard about, uh, I guess, Carnival is coming up in Brazil this time. Last year, we were reading about Brazil, black men and Brazilian soccer and hearing all about the kinky hairs and the moleques and all the rest of it and the homoeroticism. And they said the negras, so-called Afro-Brazilians now they do carnival over in the favelas and the poor areas away from all the glitzy, glamorous beaches in Brazil. They do Bachi bola. I don't even know what that means. I'd have to get a translation. But Bachibola. And they say these guys are the ball beaters. I said, for the people who were with us, who read The Black Man in Brazilian Soccer, that should. The amount of delectable Negro homoeroticism all throughout that book soccer balls and the way everything about it everything about it to then we get the carnival which is already hyper sexualized racialized racism white supremacy and the negros do their second rate carnival they're ball busters they go around banging these big balls and black people with the big balls (laughs) Dr. Francis Cress Welsing do you hear this do you hear this come on and and let us not forget brazil if you didn't read in this area of the world for their form of negro enslavement they had an institutional practice of sodomizing black males this is in white people's history books about south america pause do the young people still say that let's see that report about the city championship in West Philly. now We have Cal's listeners with connections uh, to the Philadelphia area. If any of you all participated in rowing in your time growing up in the city of brotherly love, please let us know. That report stuck out to me. Now, they heard primarily from Sam Wallace. Now, that was WHYY Philadelphia Public Radio, just audio, no video. I don't know if that young lad... Uh, with gangly arms, Sam Wallace. I don't know if that was a non-white person or a white person, but because I read Dr. Kirsten Hexstrom admitted white supremacists, man, that's one if I had known, starting 15 years ago, the number of non-white people victims of white supremacy who have a problem where it becomes conflict because I have the audacity to ask a white person, are you a racist? and I say yep and then from that point forward I refer to them with them present at times admitted racist I'm following logic if I had known the number of non-white people that would be upset about that I would have put my middle finger up from day one victims guaranteed qualified we would have had a non-white guest policy from day one and I would have said proceed don't call me brother admitted racist if you don't like it, don't say it. Admitted racist white supremacist Kirsten Hackstrom. she wrote that book. Special admission. That's a new book, too. That's why I said you got to look for new books. Look for new books for lots of reasons. Every calendar year, find one book that was published that very same calendar year that is nonfiction about racism. Maybe it doesn't have to be necessarily about... Directly, indirectly about racism. Definitely constructive, nonfiction. read. Dr. Kirsten Heckstrom's work uh, was not published this year or even last year, but it is new. Man, she talked about that rowing and old Sam Wallace specifically and saying... And that book started with Operation Varsity Blues and how white people cheat and they scheme and they lie and they can get into college and get all these scholarships and everything. And all of it is fake and phony and bogus. All of it. Oh, they didn't put the correct name on the application. But her book is about how it is so much larger than that. The systemic white supremacy uh systemic white supremacy with regards to education. And she talked about how athletics won white people. Pool all kinds of resource, just resources in general, and then athletic resources specifically as well, in areas, racially restricted regions where they live. And so they are way overrepresented in sports like wrestling, badminton, pickleball, tennis, golf, rowing, swimming, and cross country. And blah, 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 blah. You can just go on down the, the line. And she talked about how. We are accustomed, we think about college athletics and such, and we'll be thinking about what's coming up, March Madness, and thinking, oh, it's going to be, you know, little brown boys out there dominating and dunking that ball, woo, or what we just watched, football, same thing, lots of little dark boys out there running around and woo, okay. Most of college sports are not that. Most of college sports, rowing, softball, tennis, over-dominated by white people, she talked about even how specifically with something like Roman. was it a coxswain? I didn't even know how to say it, man. A coxswain, she said that that is one of those that is not competitive. You might have literally 50,000, I don't even know, 50,000, 100,000 Leroys out there breaking their brain. I'm gonna be quarterback, I'm gonna go to Bama, Coach Prime, get me Coach Prime, get me Coach Prime, come to Colorado. Rolling Coxswain? No. Not like that at all. In fact, if you just are on the team in high, you can be super lame. But I'm on the rolling team. You can get a scholarship and go to like an Ivy League school or even go to like the best of the best state university. You could be at UNC Chapel Hill, Stanford, you know, one of the big name institutions and get a full four year ride and all the connects and everything that you would get while you're there, not have to pay for anything, no loans, none of it, just row row, or tennis whatever. and hey, you do rowing, guess what no brain damage, Always. that's why I said like, if we really want to be tough and look out for the children and hook them up with an athletic scholarship, it would be get them in one of the non-brain damage sports where it's way easier to get a scholarship that's what I thought about because Sam Wallace was so excited he said ooh we LaSalle College High School like ooh sounds like they have big plans for the people at LaSalle College High School I wonder if they have lots of Leroy's at LaSalle College High School in Philadelphia hmm anyway did Mumia go to school there I wonder hmm anyway he's so excited they say he finished 10th so he didn't he wasn't like the best rower or anything, but he finished 10th and he gets a spot on the team. I said, Bing old Sam Wallace, next generation of white power, Cornell, Harvard, Yale. All you got to do is get on the team. You can be the worst. You can be number 10 of 10 on the team scholarship. And it's going to be 10 of 10 white. All of that and more in admitted racist, Dr. Kirsten Hexstrom, Her book, Special Admission, and she even talked about in detail on this broadcast how all of that deliberately designed to support white supremacy. Uh, Let's see. Now, contrast that. Jackson, Mississippi, two times. Even put that in context because I remember we had a listener who said, Man, I wish, you know, that they had the same spirit that they had before, and that the black people in Jackson fight back, get their water situation, and all that. I said, Man, you don't have water, you're not going to be doing a whole lot of fighting. You don't have water, you're not going to be doing a whole lot of living, to be truthful. Now you don't have any water, and you don't have libraries. Even in fact, just because of so-called climate change and all the rest of it because I live in a region where most of the houses do not have air conditioning because traditionally it doesn't get very hot in the summertime here in Seattle, Washington. So the few times when it does erupt and we get a 90 degree day or 110 degree Fahrenheit day like we did back in 2021, a whole lot of people suffer. So they say, oh my god what are some of the places where you can go to have, a li- uh, have air conditioning library Mississippi does not have Seattle weather it is scorching library would be one of the places you would want to go oh my god we don't have air conditioning the water's been poisoned where can we go and you can't even go to the library mind you this is the second time This calendar year, second time that we've heard a city in the U.S. where the Negros, where it is a predominantly black area and they don't have libraries. Remember in Illinois? Matter of fact, that one was even worse, if you can imagine, because they were paying taxes and couldn't find out where the money is going. They have no library and the bookmobile is on cinder blocks. Negros lived, I remember I checked it was over 90% black in this area of Illinois outside of Chicago I'd never even heard of such the bookmobile is on cinder blocks reading is more important than watching television that right there should even stand out the fact that White people, for generations, have made it so difficult for us to read, especially to read something constructive. Now, if you want to read *The Hate You Give*, you want to read *Iceberg Slim* or whatever <laughs> some nonsense *Shaft*. Or I guess we didn't read that because we didn't know *Shaft* was written by a white person, so mm, scratch that one. But if you want to read some old nonsense, <laughs> have at it. But Doctor Who, 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 Doctor Welles, Who, 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 delectable Negro, Code, Who, 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 Who. Yep, close the library, close the library. Reading is more important than watching. Almost seems like they make it easier for negros to access guns than books. Am I talking foolish? It sure seems that way. If they were shooting at the parade, it almost seems like it would be a little bit easier for you to get an AR-15. Can you get a vintage First edition printing of the ISIS papers. Which is it gonna be easier for me to get in twenty four hours? Bang bang. Let's see. I mentioned the Super Bowl already. I included that clip on the WWE and the CTE because I talked about the brain damage thing all the time with the four. I said, Don't let your children watch the Super Bowl. Call it what it is brain damage. Everything they said about WWE, really, that's the culture of white supremacy, racism, but all of it, the violence, the steroids, no medical benefits, said Vince McMahon, they said Vince McMahon, similarly, he's just like the NFL, they're trafficking in people, maybe it's not sexual Contrary man, you don't read the news, we read the news, we just heard that, wrong, it is sexual got that lawsuit right now talking about he raped employees and all the rest of it i don't even want to know so was he also raping male employees i don't even want to know ooh delectable negro but yes it is sexual yes it is all of that low life expectancy brain damage i don't even remember what my name is by the time i get 50 and i'm dead if i get that far all of that is the NFL. In fact, I deliberately picked the clip to remind where is the big event for the WWE hosted on an annual basis now? Oh! Jerry Jones Stadium for America's team. The Dallas Cowboys. One and the same. In fact, they get a whole lot. The Rock Is a former uh, professional football. You know, you smell what the rock is cooking. He's a former professional football player. They get a lot of you know brain damage on top of brain damage on top of brain damage. Exactly what they said for that clip on the WWE. It should be in big, all caps, bold face print, underlined. Hey, hey, hey. All of this, you are signing up to be trafficked you are signing up to break your brain and your body. And you might not even have medical benefits once this is all over and you will probably shorten your life, uh, which might be a good thing because you want to remember who you are. So make sure you get all that in before you get to hooting and hollering and elbow smashing and everything. You got all that. Okay. Right. Or, or just go get the football players because they already got brain damage. So I mean, Hey, you already got what's, what's an extra teaspoon of brain damage. Let's see. White culture. Let's see. My man Arlo Washington, black self-respect in Little Rock, Arkansas. Has he reminded Jerry Jones, Cowboys owner, brings the WWE to his facility every year? They got that photo of Jerry Jones hanging out, watching the Little Rock Nine be terrorized. He said, "Well, I didn't. Well, mean I didn't call uh, Melba Batilla Beals?" and and Ernest Green, I didn't, whoa, I didn't call them no Negro, I didn't do no racist things, I just was a curious white man, he was a teenager, time. I was a curious teen, you know, I just, I just wanted to see, I didn't do nothing racist, what you mean? I said, that's you right there, he was like, oh yeah, that was me, I just, I just I just wanted to see. Mm. Anyway, uh, we did read about the Little Rock Nine, Double the Book Club, Melba Patilla Beals, Warriors Don't Die, and then Hazel and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Eckford, uh, black female, terrorized. They put her picture up a lot of times. And then uh, Hazel Masary, white woman, she changed her name. Uh, she was one of the ones who said, oh, yes, I was there shouting, no count. Negroes, get out of our school. Yeah. Anyway, uh, my man, Arlo Washington, 17 years old, mother passes away. No count. Dad was never there. No count. Black males. Arlo Washington owns a barbershop. Loaning out money to black people. So I'm going to see he goes and he reads the information about the great Bill Clinton's CDFL program. And he says, I'm going to see if I can get this funding and open a bank in a used shipping container. Now, I cannot overstate. Wow. The highest commendations to Arlo Washington. What a dude. What a dude. Black self-respect. Worthy of applause, right? I'm sure directly has helped tons of black people. Like, I mean, it's someone who needs $100 or whatever it is and stuck and that sort of thing. I'm sure he has helped tons uh, of black people in the Little Rock, Arkansas area. All of that said, even in fact, what he said at the beginning, when he said that he went from his neighborhood in Little Rock where they have no ATMs, you got all these black people. All of that is deliberate. That's in Emily, uh, Footer's book, *The White Wall*. And then you drive next door to where the white people live the area they called it the heights suburb of Little Rock Arkansas population is less than 9,000 you already know well over 80% white that's not an accident that's why they have a robust number of ATMs anyway anyway All of that is spectacular, but I'm so glad that they gave the data at the end that the so-called wealth gap is trillions of dollars. That is so not Mr. Washington's effort, but I mean, if this is supposed to be how we replace white supremacy with justice, that's not a drop in the bucket. That is totally pitiful. In fact, I would say that is evidence of white people are not interested in solving this problem. They are dedicated to maintain they like this the way it is. That's exactly the way Mr. Fuller says it. They like this exactly the way it is. They are dedicated to maintaining a system of white supremacy forever. Gap what they call the racial wealth gap is probably getting worse. And I think that that's the data from the white wall it's not getting better anyway the white man John Hoffman who put this documentary together and he said that he wanted to so called make the racial wealth gap real whatever that means he said implying that some people don't know about this I don't know who he's talking about but that sounds like the same sort of rhetoric that white people are ignorant about racism, and they need to see this film to realize, oh, dang, the neighbors are poor and broken. We should do something. Mr. Arlo Washington, he shouldn't be doing all this by himself. They already know this. They already know this. And even, in fact, when he started off and he said the color of money, before he said money, I was trying to guess which project he was going to mention because they got the color of money, they got the color of wealth. They got The Color of Law and then they got The Color of Debt How Collection Suits Squeeze Black Neighborhoods. Now, everything that I just read to you, these are all different book titles and most of these are not new books. That last one, The Color of Debt How They Put the Squeeze on the Negro neighborhood, so-called that is not a book, but that is a Pro Publica report, but that's a decade old that book The Color of Wealth we had two of the co-authors as guests on our program had another admitted racist in that group but that book is really old too because it was it was not new when we had several of the co-authors of The Color of Wealth on our program in 2009 so all of that to say I think there's enough literature out and Emily Flitter's book she writes for the New York Times and she writes columns on a regular basis about the so-called wealth gap and all of that. And she had been writing about this well before her book was published, I believe in 2022. So white people are not ignorant. In fact, white people have already written tons of books and projects on this. They know we white people are balling and the negros all around the world. They're in the shanties, the favelas, the ghetto. We got it. Uh, let's see. And even that reminded me of what I said yesterday. Like every time when they talk about thinking differently and doing it big and doing it up for black people, I said that yesterday we were on work, uh, neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, Koya Nyangi, she was selling beads in Colorado. Colorado keeps coming up. And I said, dang, an African person selling tribal beads? That is not switching it up. That's not very different to me. That's very <laughs> cliche in the system of white supremacy, racism, a black person and a barbershop. That is also very cliche, uh, in the system of white supremacy, racism. To me, we've had that for years, very few types of businesses and entrepreneurial opportunities. We will allow negros to do each other's hair, or maybe you could be a mortician and bury other niggers Cause we don't want to touch the niggers in that manner. Anyway, that's that type of thing, or do some rap records, you know, come play football. Uh, Last part, I'll I'll get in and we'll nab our callers and such. That report, uh, Lexington, Mississippi. At first, I thought they were talking about Lexington, Kentucky. I wasn't even aware that there's a so-called Lexington, Mississippi, but I guess there is. When they were talking about the widespread uh, abuse from race soldiers, uh, so-called enforcement officers in the area, I thought it was so important Uh, they mentioned that you have to have the correct intentions. Mr. Fuller talks about that a lot as well you have to have correct intentions how these folks they do not come with correct intentions to police that's why we don't use that term in the word guide but they come to terror that's exactly what they said we came to smack you around and beat you up or maybe both <laughs> pull you over for no reason but the thing that really galled me in that report because that was local Mississippi journalism they just kind of quickly alluded to Other officers being recently arrested in Rankin County. Whoa, 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 (laughs) whoa, man, whoa! That's one you all are directly in Mississippi. You should have all the details about that. I'm thousands of miles, multiple time zones away, and I know a whole lot of details about that Rankin County episode. I mean, if we can be talking about police terrorizing black people, and this is recent, it's not like we got to go way back and talk about prehistoric time stuff with Emmett Till and all. Uh, Medgar Evers. We don't have to do all that. We can talk about things that happened right now, just within the last eight, nine months. You mean those race soldiers, the so-called goon squad in Rankin County that was, since we had Valentine's Day, that was pouring chocolate sauce on niggers and sticking dildos in fact, Remember, because I am not in Mississippi, but i read the court papers for that case and the white goon squad members these black males want democracy now and talked about this although they didn't get into all the gore of it that they could have when they saw that one of the privileged black males had defecated on them said oh man we were gonna sodomize you didn't i mention that already about brazil we were going to sodomize you. We got the dildo and chocolate sauce ready, but you, you defecated on yourself, you no-count privileged black male, and they threw them both in the shower and made them shower together, the two black males, privileged. That's the goons. And then they put the gun in the black male's mouth, the great equalizer, and then shot him in the mouth. That's the Rankin County case. And in fact, I had to say, one of the officers, Mr. Deadman. His relative, Daryl Deadman, went to the same Jackson with no water, no library, and they ran over James Craig Anderson and bragged about it. I ran that nigger over. That's in 2011. That's the case that you're talking about. Don't just make an offhand, because I mean, dang, that in my view... Wow, that's telling me a lot more context about what's happening in Mississippi Nine on 2025. Maybe all of the individuals go to the police department and say, oh yes. I can't wait to get a badge and a nigger stick in Mississippi. I got my dildo and my handcuffs ready. I got my dildo and my handcuffs my chocolate sauce. The chocolate sauce is a little more expensive. We so gotta be judicious with the chocolate sauce but man I'm excited what does it mean to be white anyway in my view that is a major act of racism that's a type of uh, omission as I see that sort of thing consistently where they'll mention a case but they don't really give you the Details. They didn't have to talk that long. They could have just said, oh, the ranking case where they were sodomizing the black males and chocolate sauce, put them in the shower. Yeah, yeah okay. Goon Squad, yeah, okay. We didn't even get that. And they're in Mississippi. Anyway, shout to Medgar Evers. And the help, fried chicken. Uh, number again, 605 313 5164. The code, 564 nine four three pound press star six one. If you would like to participate, you can let us know if you got to see a photograph, Lisa Lopez Galvin, white person, non-white person uh, as unless I've been misinformed, unless there's been an update, the only fatality put that in quotes, the only fatality at the Kansas city parade uh, shooting. Although, as I said, about two dozen people were Injured from gunfire and probably many more with PTSD and, you know, all the rest of it. Uh, let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in, if you have commentary observations to share, lines should be open. Proceed. Hello. Female caller in Georgia. Yes,
7: ma'am. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Hope everyone's having the best um, weekend they can have. Um, I don't have much to say. I just looked up the person who passed away. They look white to me, Um, but that's just me. I just kind of looked real quick because you said their name. Um, I did want to give a report about the library. I think you were talking about last week at your library. All the books were female, female authors, that kind of thing. Um, I went to my local library. It's just a branch because um, I... I was like, oh yeah, I have to remove my library card so I went to go do that. And um, they had a small display about black history. It was concerning that this is a majority black area. You know, the fact that it was small was little, you know, not surprised, was a little surprising. But this area where I live, even though, you know, it's a majority black area, there are quite a few um, non-black people that live up here. Like people, um, but they did have authors that were both black, I mean, both male and female, um, fiction and nonfiction, and there was one black male that had two books, I believe his name was, was Colson Whitehead, and I thought, oh, wow, he has multiple books, so I looked him up, I thought he might have been local, but he's born and raised in New York, and his wife is a literary agent who... From where I see, I looked her up. She looks pretty white to me, uh, which was, I thought, appropriate because I know we talk about in the publishing industry, there are a lot of white women in that industry. So I, thought I went, that's how he got, you know, some of his books published. But according to her website, because they started a little company, he is not listed as one of the clients of the firm that she started. Um, and that firm, I didn't look up other people all the, it seems like a small firm, but all the names that looked like they were part of the firm were female. Which I thought it was, you know, based on what we've been talking about, wasn't that surprising. Um, but that was the main thing I wanted to point out. And sorry I didn't call yesterday, but work is pretty normal. No big changes. We laugh a lot about things, but work was the same. Thank you.
26: Fascinating. Much obliged. Uh, It looks like Colson Whitehead's wife, uh, Julie Bearer, I think is how you say her name, B-A-R-E-R, Julie Bearer. And for sure, she looks like she would be classified as a white person, uh, I think. Uh, And uh, I'm, I'm not surprised that she is in charge of a major publishing group or what have you that... That is what I have been told. That's been reported widely. People like Julie Bearer are in charge of who gets a book published, not just white people specifically, but white women who gets a book published. Um, Yeah. I'm not surprised they would have Colson Whitehead's uh, fiction readily available. I did look at some of the images, other images that she was talking for She said she thought Lisa, Lopez Galvan was uh, classified as white and when I put her name in a different picture popped up than the one I'd seen before because I think I'd only seen one picture the image that interestingly this image she looks more pale I was like oh maybe she's a white person but they also had her next to Taylor Swift so I don't know on the one hand I was thinking dang she's not that pale like you can't get much for sure classified as white than Taylor Swift. Um, so I was thinking one tan could be contrast because she's not that pale, but I don't know. Maybe some of Taylor Swift's uh, white power is leaking over onto Lisa Lopez Galvan. But I don't know. I looked at some of the other pictures. She does look a little bit more pale. I guess, you know, like I said, sometimes it depends on the lighting in the picture and did they have a tan what time of year, that sort of thing. Other folks can let us know if you, what do you think? Would she be classified as white Non-white? Other people who dialed in, hand up, proceed. Lauren, yes, ma'am.
6: Yeah, um, evening, guys. I looked at a picture of Lisa Lopez Galvan. Now, I think she's probably classified as non-white, but if her name was like Amy Adams or Julie Peters, I think she would be accepted as a white person. Um part of the segments you played today. The one about uh the wrestling, um, there was a part in there that really surprised me. Um, it was a question asked, Can you get a concussion by getting hit in the ankle? And the answer was yes you can. So I was super surprised by that and that Little Rock segment, Arlo, the, the black male who's a barber and loaning people money and whatnot. Um, it was a part, I think it was supposed to be on the documentary or whatnot, but it said that 95% of the loans are paid back. And it sounded like the white man, he said, every banker who sees this is shocked at that number, so it has to be considerably less than that. Well, I don't know, because white people don't believe it. it can't be true, right? I, I don't know about that one, Um so I was a little hmm, – took note of that. The one about the uh, law enforcement officers in Mississippi, now I'm not sure if this was said, but it seems they were talking about, like, a paycheck or a pay stub that was on his dresser or whatnot, and it said that he made $10.63 an hour um, working for the police department. I, maybe I misheard that, but – if that was an accurate number, that is a very low number. And also I noted that it said one of the Lexington residents compared the police department to the mob and this lady she sounded like she was um black. She said for some reason it feels like we're not gonna get the justice. Yeah, you know, I, I can I can understand why she thinks that. And she also said something I, I noticed um people, non white people especially have a real hesitant to just specify that racial classification when we're talking about white people. And she said the haves and the have nots, meaning, you know, the people classified as white and the people classified as non-white. I've heard that one before, too. Um, It's interesting. Uh, Alaska, that uh, Representative Vance, um, (laughs) uh, they're in whatever, the government office and – um, you know, she says, hey, you know, it's white sisters going through the same thing, and they are not getting justice either. That white woman didn't want any attention given to the mistreatment of non-white people. And I think that is just, I don't know, a characteristic of being in a system of racism, white supremacy, The mistreatment of non-white people is supposed to be standard and not um, focused on. I mean, I guess we should think about it enough to where we don't make white people angry, where we're scared, but we're not supposed to talk about it as this is some sort of mistreatment that's going on. Um, so I took note of that. Um, Let me see. The, the shooter, the, the 14 – well, he wasn't a shooter. The 14-year-old, what I thought was a white child, um, who wanted to shoot up the school, and it seemed like he might have had the assistance of an adult-age person. Um, one of his classmates reports him and the classmate's father knew officers on the Fairbanks police force. And that's what they said, police force. That made me think about Columbine, what I thought was Eric Harris's parents. In the book, they didn't specify whose parents had the connection to the police department, but I thought Eric Harris. Um, The Kansas City, it was a line in there that really uh, stood out to me. Uh, it was a white man. Well, I don't know. I don't know who said it, actually. But he said, you have a criminal enforcement regime so you can use it. And I was like, hmm. I mean, that's probably accurate. It's just they usually don't hear people call it a criminal enforcement regime when they're talking about uh, white people enforcing the laws they've written down. But um, yeah, that is accurate. And um, someone said, normalcy is all messed up. You know, they were talking about the parades and what's going to happen with the next parade. And he's like, well, you know, we're going to have a St. Patrick's Day parade. And, um, you know, it, but normalcy is all messed up. He had, and I thought to myself, yeah, that, that's true. It's it's all messed up to be in a system of racism, white supremacy. And this is the first time, you know, when I was listening um I read, like, one or two articles about the shooting that happened in Kansas City after the Super Bowl, but I hadn't uh, thought that the alleged shooters were non-white, black. And today, you know, while this was going on, I, I Googled and I found an article in the Associated Press, and it said, um, well, I don't know if it said it on the second page, but I read it in the article that juveniles as young as 12 can be certified for trial as adults. And I was like, oh, it's the first time I've heard anything like that about this situation. So this is when I thought they must be black. Um, And that's that's all I have for today. Thank you for allowing me to speak.
26: Much obliged, Lauren. I have not seen the alleged shooters from all of this they said i think two people have been arrested they have in custody and all but i have not seen them they said they're juveniles um yeah i haven't seen them so i don't know if they're classified as white or non-white but i did hear one that these were so-called illegal immigrants who came in and did the shooting And we need to close the border and that no count Biden. I did hear that. No idea if any of that is true. Sounds like it certainly could all just be racist, uh, racist lies. Uh, And then I think mayor Quentin Lucas talked about in the segment that the photos weren't released because these are black juveniles. And if they were white photos would have been released. Um, Again, sounds like it could be racist lies, even some white victimhood type of thing saying it's reverse racism. (laughs) Somehow, and I have not seen the shooters in this case at all, so I have no idea, um, yeah, who these folks were. They said it could even be more arrests coming, so we will have to see. I guess eventually they'll have court proceedings and all of that. Their family will be there, so eventually we'll get to find out more details, maybe what you know led to all of this. Uh, I think that was Mayor Quentin Lucas blackmail who said that we have because they were talking about. We already have laws that should be enforced, you know, about these firearms, especially if they're in the hands of juveniles and enforcement officers not enforcing policies that are already there, which has been a major theme that was even included in the increasing so-called white nationalism, white supremacy. I think they might even say white extremism where they were saying sheriffs in certain locales Now they were talking about upstate New York. They didn't want to enforce the gun laws because they don't think these are constitutional. And it's the same thing. Mayor Quentin Lucas, nobody, you don't tell us, white man, you got to give over your gun. We're not doing this. And it's been, you know, lots of that over the past uh, few years or so. But um, the portion about you can get a concussion from your ankle, if you get hit in the ankle or shearing, uh, if that occurs in the ankle, uh, I did not know that specific, like that specific part of the body, but Dr. Julie Stam, a white female neurologist who was with us at the beginning of 2023, right after Damar Hamlin in her book, uh, use the, uh, the youth brain and tackle sports. Uh, or it's the Youth Brain in Sports but in her book she does talk about that uh, how you can get a concussion especially young people because their brain is still immature you can get a concussion not just from getting uh, hit in the head per se uh, but even if you get like she talks about even if you get hit hit in the torso you can get a concussion (laughs) like if you get really hit really hard and the same thing that they were talking about the flips and all the rest of it like wrestling football all of that. Definitely for young people, no way. Even for a lot of older people, no way. But yes, I found all of that fascinating. How sensitive that brain computer is. Definitely want to be careful. But that is a fascinating book for many reasons. Julie uh, Stam's book with us at the beginning of 2023. Uh, let's see. Uh, number again, 605 313 Five one, six, four, the code five six, four, nine, four, three pound, press star six, one, if you would like to participate. the fourteen year old who was going to do the shooting in Ohio, I've not seen them either, so they don't necessarily show the photos at all times I don't know if he's going to be charged as an adult either we'll get to see I do remember seeing Ethan Crumley, but he had killed four people so and he was tried as an adult so I do remember seeing him anyway uh, let's see other folks they have commentary observations questions to share let's see Uh, other folks with a hand up retired firefighter will nab others as well uh, retired firefighter do you for the fire department is 56, if you're already on the department, like not saying you're 56 and you're trying to just start your career out, but if you've already been there and you've put in some time or what have you and you've moved up the ranks, as they say, you're more senior level, is 56, is that too old? that they start saying, you know, hey, man, you, you should be retired. Get out of here. We're done with you. Or can you still hang out and put out fires and such, do safety at 56?
18: Uh, I've never heard of, uh, that restriction at all. Never heard of it. <laughs> uh, that sounds like, uh, somebody want to, uh, practice racism, white supremacy. <laughs> I have a plan and it's probably a very small, very small, uh, fire department or a volunteer fire department where they can do just about anything to uh a non white person or say anything. Uh that doesn't sound uh correct. I've never had that experience at all as far as uh from what I've worked around. Um DCS. I was not able to attend today uh, because of, uh, something that, uh, most, if not all of us have to do at least once a year, and that's pay taxes. <laughs> I had to go to, uh, my quote unquote tax man. Uh, I would, I'm going to, uh, contact Mr. Clark and get a, get an update on how everything went, uh, today because, uh, Everybody was concerned about the uh a couple of the older guys who did not partic- participate. And uh I'm pretty sure that it was fixed. I just would like to know uh what strategy they used uh on uh getting that fixed. Uh something like that takes place uh just about every session and for the most part it is the older uh, guys, uh, from the standpoint, I guess from the standpoint of, uh, uh, they, they're old enough to have, uh, a, uh, more opinionated than, than the younger, younger boys are. And, uh, in some cases, probably is, uh, different from the parent the parent wants them to uh, be a little bit more active, uh, in a, in a, in active and active in a constructive manner. And I don't mean necessarily criminal. I mean, from the standpoint of instead of you just laying up playing video games and watching TV all day, you know, you need to be doing this. I've seen your grades, that sort of thing. And they think other than and actually resist from what the parent is saying. And uh they would take that they would take that they, they know that a parent could force them, quote unquote, to uh to go to a DCS program and they would show that attitude uh at the program. Uh but I think from the standpoint of uh introducing the program to to uh let that person see that we are we are capable of of uh having projects and things of things that you may be interested in uh we would ask you what you're interested in and with that interest we we would uh kind of like uh work on it to whereas it becomes something constructive for that young person and that normally that normally works out it normally works out uh the uh The uh, uh, death in Kansas City, very, very, very close, very close in both ways, very close in both ways. There's too many photographs that that show different, give you different looks. Uh, I'm very close to saying that she may be identified as non-white. I haven't seen uh, a lot of the a lot of the pictures that made her look lighter. Um there was something else that I uh, wanted to uh talk about. Uh, oh goodness that's a problem with me. I guess at my age I'm getting older, I'll be forgetting things. Need to write things down more. But anyway, if I if I if I regain my memory, maybe I have a chance to express it. That's it. Thank you.
26: Blame it on the football. Blame it on the football.
18: <laughs> much. Oh, oh, oh! I, I know, I know, I know what it is. I know what it is, Gus. And, and you brought it out when you said, "Blame it on the football." That the, uh, concussions. Uh, you can get a concussion by being close to something exploding. That's another way you can get a concussion without someone, you know, actually hitting you. Uh, I would say race car drivers, uh, also probably get concussions, uh, because of something that's called whiplash. Uh, matter of fact, you can actually get killed. I think one of the last great, quote unquote, stock car drivers, uh, died because he didn't have that, that neck brace that they, that they wear now. They're, they're literally uh, strapped into their seat and they have a, it's like a, uh, one of those neck braces that uh we used to wear in football around their necks to where they can't move their their head around because you know something you know vehicle going two hundred miles an hour uh it don't have to hit anything just the just the, the torque of it you know uh uh going uh it can basically uh cause damage to you but definitely whiplash and also an explos uh, an explosive device that blows up close to you. You can get a concussion. Jeff, thank
26: you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. I think for most of the Leroy's and such, uh, I'm going to hazard that tackle football is going to represent a greater danger than professional drag racing for most. I know that some of them do the scooters. We talked about that before, but I'm going to hazard. And in fact, Dr. Jessica Wallace told us, oh, yeah, there's lots of ways you can get a concussion beyond the football field. And she said, in fact, for black boys, especially, they are at greater risk of getting a concussion than white boys, same age. Mostly because of things that happen off the field. She didn't mention drag racing or explosives. She mentioned, Coon, what did you say to me? Did you step on my foot? Did you look at me? That sort of thing. And now I got to go upside your head and wham Yeah, that is also a good way to get a concussion. She said, That is a big one, being nonviolent with other non-white people not fighting, being in conflict believe that's a big one that Mr. Fuller emphasizes all the time minimizing conflict with non-white people not squabbling and arguing with non-white people fighting and killing non-white people bonking non-white people in the head and giving them a concussion all of that see if we can minimize eliminate some of that I did want to highlight as well Lauren when she said about that segment that we heard uh, in uh, not Lakewood Lexington Mississippi where they said the poor people are treated worse. She said people of color and poor people which are like one of the same. No man. <laughs> no man. Uh, when I'm Johnny Cochran and I got my Ferragamos on and you pulled me over and smacked me around no man <laughs> no, man, No don't be telling me that yeah the niggers and poor white people is about the same thing no man no man no man <laughs> like, no, I don't think you even treat poor white that va- I know you don't treat poor white people like that that is just reserved for niggers regardless of their bank account status whatever else anyway when so she that was the start the beginning part of it uh people of color which i never used but whatever people of color poor people one and the same now i was thinking that she was gonna because most of the time when they start out with the people of color i'm waiting because the the if you're going to say people of color it would be people of non-color but people don't say that so i'm waiting as is, it, is it white privilege those with privilege. What was she gonna say? <laughs> she said, "People of color and then haves. What? We well, you, you said people of color? You said people of color, man. <laughs> like, what is that? I mean, victims guaranteed qualified. I mean, hey, I don't live in Lexington, Mississippi. They only have libraries there either. I bet I don't live down there, so you know, whatever. <laughs> like, hey, they, the goon squad, their relatives, they may know where she lives. So I don't have no problem with, you know, that. But man, that is really widespread. Exactly what Lawrence said. Well, we will not call out the problem. Now, even contrast that with what I said earlier, the number of non-white people who get furious. Gus T saying that a white person is an admitted racist like Jane Elliott who came on this program and said, yep, I'm a racist. What else am I supposed to call her? They don't even give me, like, what would be a more accurate term than admitted racist? If anyone has a more accurate term than that, once a white person has said, yep, I'm a racist. What's the more accurate term? And I'll use that one. But man, Dr. Wellsing talked about that in terms of how the system of white supremacy has warped our psychology. We have been so conditioned. Sometimes, even just the truth about what is happening here is bothersome. We get angry, agitated about that. You don't have to get upset at me. You don't even have to listen, really. The problem is white people. That's another one. Oh my God! Oh, can't believe that nigger is saying that. VGQ, I thought I did. Be- 605 313 5164. The code 564 943 pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I don't know if we have parents listening in, especially if we uh, have folks who have like younger. Uh, Children, or maybe you're thinking about, you know, starting a family so-called at some point producing offspring that segment where they talked, uh, it was the high school uh, caribou high school in Maine. Now Maine is one of those new England, super white, basically like a racially restricted state. Uh, But they said caribou high school, they have the biometrics where they store the fingerprints and all that for the students. And they said they can use this to keep track of, attendance and if it's an emergency and all the rest of it and they said hey you know we got all these school shootings and safety man that would be one we would have now even if they don't have that do we really want to be sending our child to public school white female teachers just like uh the folks who dominate the book publishing industry do we really want to continue all of that was public school really that great for us so that would be one but then they got all the biometrics so how long do they store this biometric information I mean they got all this your fingerprint and everything else do they have this for like the next 50 years do they sell this information to anyone else what's their security like if they get hacked it would be lots to think about and even what they're saying if this is supposed to be about safety Dr. Angeline Flowers and others have told us hey most of these school shooters They are students at the school where they're doing the shooting at. That's not always the case, but most of these, even the shooting that we heard were attempted shooting, planned shooting in Ohio. He was going to shoot up a school where he was a student. So he would have legally been there. It would not have registered the uh, biometrics, the fingerprint scan. It would not have alerted to a problem. Now, unless they got some sort of setup where they can automatically detect a gun, I doubt they got uh, metal detectors. If this was a white child at a white school, I seriously doubt that they got metal detectors. So unless they got something like that to know that he had a firearm, and I have not heard of any sort of sophisticated technology like that. I think the closest that I've heard is they have some sort of system where it can hear uh, gunfire. It can recognize gunfire and alert the authorities Uh, that, you know, seems like there might be a serious shooter event at the school. But most schools don't have that technology. So, I mean, what would they have done? That's what I'm saying. Something to think about, like, even, is this going to even help if there is a school shooting, which most of the time is by a student who is a student at the school. Is this even going to help to do what they say? Just something to think about. I would not, if I was a student, I would feel some type of way about them all of that. We got to scan our fingerprint to get in the school. And then they got all of our data and they can track us using all their biometric monitors throughout the day. And they said they use this at like assemblies and all the rest of it. Like what? I am not. I mean, Hey, right on. If it keeps, if they say, if it does what it's supposed to do and all that, but man, I would not be feeling that if that was me as a student I would have lots of questions and concerns about that if that was my child. Even if I was having, trying to explain this to them,
5: like,
25: uh,
26: hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. Anyway, other folks, if they have this sort of technology, the facial recognition, because they said they're starting to have that at a lot more schools now, too. Like they got TSA to get into the bill, which again, most of these shootings. Are by students who do attend the schools, so that wouldn't really do anything either but uh, that wow that would be a lot to, to process if I had offspring and that's what it's going to be like that would be another reason like man I am not sending my child to that like are you serious anyway uh, folks will give 5-5 five, five if they have any other observations comments that they want to share number again 605 313 5164, the code 564 943 pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Remind folks, I did say read one book per calendar year, nonfiction related to racism, maybe doesn't have to be directly about, should be something constructive, not, you know goofing off, wasting time, we got serious problems, they're shooting up the Super Bowl parade we got serious problems there should be some urgency Uh, there have already been many books, I told several folks this, some people, I said this, they went and found a book Bravo, said I am going to get to reading bravo we can be up to date as i said new racist jargon or if it's constructive you know you get great information that's helpful you want to share new concepts things that you help will motivate us to get this problem solved tremendous that's what we should be doing but there are so many books published on racism literally when i said i just did a casual glance What are some of the books that have been published in 2024? I think many of us, from a music perspective, we know there's songs and albums released all the time, on a weekly basis, especially now with technology and such. The same is true for books, maybe even more so. But there are tons of books published about all kinds of subjects, all the time, about racism, all the time. One. Now, I already have a list of books. I had many people said, "What? That's crazy, Gus!" You stop lying to us. You know you don't. Yes, I already have a list of books from 2024. Not just everything that came out, but specific. These are books where I specifically looked. Let me see the chapters. Let me see some of the pages. Oh wow, this is incredible. Let t- one chapter title: Lewis Carroll and the Imperial erotization of white childhood chapter title lucy bland refers to the fact that in mid-19th century scientific discourse there was much talk about primitive promiscuity although the term was used to refer to an early stage of human development it was also used as a description for contemporary Primitives, As scientific discourse progressed into a later Victorian period, white girls would have been classified as a most dangerous type as opposed to white boys because the sciences of craniology and anthropometry had discovered that women shared with Negroes a narrow, childlike skull and head as compared with the well rounded-head, small-jawed jaw, small males of the higher races. Bland maintains that knowledge of these differences required photography to be realized so that white females of any age could be classified as atavistic specimens of humankind. Moreover, photographs of primitives in various stages of undress, according to Bland, provided a surrogate pornography for European middle-class males. Why this is so important because this situation has direct crossover with imperial discourse of this same era. Bill Ashcroft argues that the child becomes important to the discourse of empire because the invention of childhood itself in European social excuse me European society was coterminous with the invention of that other notion of supreme importance to imperialism race racism white supremacy photography becomes an important instrument here through which to inscribe appearances with the object being the control of representation itself as such the child figures into this economy as a way of signifying the menace of primitism as the very heart of darkness within the colonial project the concomitant growth of the Victorian idealization of the child and the brutalization of the children of the working class is a contradiction suppressed within the discourse of childhood this goes much of the way towards explaining Dodgson's desire to portray his upper middle class girl subjects as working class maids and waifs because it then gave him permission in his way to menace their bodies by figurative degrading them before the act of photographic uh, photographically capturing them, their direct gaze into the camera speaks further of the savage impudence which suggests the requirement of discipline. Dodgson's photographs seem to suggest a primitive. A devolution onto themselves what Carol Mayer refers to as a slippage between child primitive and other I was just talking about that term and where the ultimate primitive dress is nudity by costuming these upper middle class white girls as Turks or Chinamen queered them up a bit to make it acceptable for Dodgson to prey upon them. Such posing would overlap with popular conceits regarding the sexual submissiveness of Asian peoples during this era. In, case, in the case of the sisters Beatrice and Evelyn Hatch it was clear that Dodgson has access to being alone with them that their bodies are furnished to him by one Mrs. L and that both were at ease with what Carroll referenced to as primitive dress, a term that for him was interchangeable with sans hablement. I'll stop there because he goes on to just go more into racial science, Darwinism, and even gives more into this whole chapter is about the sexualization of white children. And he goes on to talk about what's that? white people don't care about children but he goes on to talk about this widespread sexualization of all of these child models uh, who were posing for these photographs and you know they're kind of risking I mean this is old stuff This is like 1800s we're talking about and these are white children too but they're posed in, in these really risque manners and he's talking about how they were sexually abused and People knew white people knew about this and did that same thing that we have heard before. Jerry Sandusky and Jeff, uh, Je- Jeffrey Epstein and all the rest of it, it really reminded me of John Benet Ramsey, since we talk about Colorado. But and Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, since it's Black History Month, revered black historian and scholar Ooh, cowbell yikes. anyway, guest on the program in 2010, Dr. Painter. In her book, The History of White People, she talks about the exact same thing. White people's long history of sexualizing even white children. We talked about that in detail when she was a guest on the program 2010. Any More reading. Less TV. More reading. Chapter title again. I'll One more to the chapter title I just read from. Lewis Carroll and the Imperial erotization of white childhood book just came out this year. Let's see other folks who dialed in that we missed totally. Uh, if you have commentary to share proceed. May I be heard our color in Florida? Yes, sir.
20: Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to the host. The listeners and callers um i think the the person who was killed i, I think that would be classified as a non-white person uh, i was thinking about how they hadn't really revealed who i guess was arrested or apprehended um and it made me think about that segment where i believe that may have been a either a non-white person that used the term, I think, dog whistle, and the term dog was used. And I I remember how on, like, when it happened, they said, oh, well, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with terrorism or right-wing extremism. So um, they used those terms like they were excluding that, that may have something to do with it. Um, and I'm thinking that they are applying terrorism to somebody non-white and so-called not only terrorism, but so-called right-wing extremism to, I guess, somebody white. And I'm thinking, like, what other terms could they end up coming, with, coming up with in the future? And with them saying that it was some juveniles that were arrested. I still remember last year, Gus, uh, with um, 12-year-old Christopher Atkins uh, down in Ocala in Marion County. It, they had him with his shirt off. with uh, He was in handcuffs. And if you can find his image online with uh, two other black males, I think 15 or 16, maybe 17. And they were arrested, I guess, for, um, killing two white girls or whatever. And the sheriff had a lot of, uh, very, um, critical things to say about them. So that's, that's one recent example. I remember about, um, some black teenagers having their images, um, Available online or for public viewing, I guess. And the segment where I think the lady in Alaska was saying, "Hey, what about the white women? Your, you know, your white sisters," <laughs> and the the non-white people were just totally, in my opinion, disregarded. Like they don't the white people do not experience what the non-white people there anywhere go through. Um, yeah, and then for her to, I guess, apologize, but it just didn't seem like that was Jane to me. Uh, but other than that, my last thing i like to share was when I was looking at um, another news report of Fanny Willis, I think that was her father, was saying that she, or, yeah, that he taught her to, to keep money, like I guess physical cash, and I'm thinking that might have had something to do with racism and how black people are treated at banks. And the news segment was saying that they were that they were being grilled, that being grilled. So I, I thought about that terminology and the racism and that. Uh, other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak.
26: That is kind of delectable Negro. Now, I will concede that metaphor is frequently employed in a courtroom type setting. Uh, I just heard that about old Mark Zuckerberg, who I was talking about before, where many said he was grilled earlier when he had to go up to talk to the senators about his platform enabling child abusers, child rapists, and all the rest. of we oh, got grilled. So that is uh, in common usage. That said, Fannie Willis, black female victim of white supremacy in good old Georgia, man, delectable Negro, very barbecueish. Four more years, not the current president. Four more years, the uh, Donald. Um, in spite of whatever loss they're talking, about. four more years, Donald. Uh, the. Christopher Atkins case from last year he said that was a twelve year old and they put his mugshot up. Now this is from Oh Click on Orlando. Uh just trying to give their call numbers for the station or the site, but I don't see T V network I think it is. Is this ABC NBC affiliate? Doesn't say. Anyway. Uh from Click on Orlando. Uh Six, here's why News Six. That's it. News Six decided to name the 12-year-old accused in Marion County murders. Two boys arrested, third sought in triple homicide. Now I'm skipping now where they've already, you know, the sheriffs uh, in Marion County uh, have given the names out and such. News Six has decided to name the 12-year-old identified by Woods as Christopher Atkins and show his mugshot with no shirt on. Oftentimes, News Six will not name minors or use their photos because of their age however due to the nature of the crime three slain juveniles and the charges first degree murder we have decided in this case to name and show the suspects including the 12 year old after the news conference news six interviewed woods at the nearby event and asked him the specific role the 12 year old had in the case His involvement, as far as I could tell you, is that he shot the third victim who was found in the trunk of the car. And they go on to give more uh, details, but I guess that figured into their rationale. That's a a recent example. We'll see what unfolds in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, because that's just from Wednesday, I think. Uh, And even the Ohio case, because they just used the initials uh, where he had the plan that he was going to go shoot the school up and all of it had a kill list man keys that's uh columbine i know they didn't have a kill list the day of but they had it previously where they talked about having their kill list and people that they wanted to get so Dill and Reb, their influence always there um yeah we'll have to see if they if they identify put pictures up and all the rest of it we'll see if that happens but i can think of a lot of cases where it's been a black person a juvenile and they picture name all of that they have no problems so yeah we'll have to keep an eye on all that as it develops Uh, let's see any other folks uh, commentary observations they wanted to make sure they get in that to be like 10 seconds grand soon folks are satisfied Uh, we should be here during the week, just have to confirm the day, not, well, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> you'll have to check. We should also have other, as I said, you should check for events that are happening in your region. Check if you have community college, university, library, community center, any of the above, right in your region. Check, see if they have any uh, events Things that are taking place uh, might be an opportunity where you can see new books that have been published or other constructive information about racism, white supremacy. If it's going to be someone white, you can ask a question in public. So many of us, we are in fear of using correct, accurate language to talk about racism, white supremacy in public. If you have offspring, I think that is so important for them to see you. Speaking with black self-respect, not hooting and hollering and yelling, but speaking calmly, confidently, you are informed and really questioning a white person. Super important, I think. I did since last uh, moment before we wrap up, I didn't read the exact portion to really Get people's attention. All I mean, the whole chapter, like I said, is about eroticizing children. I didn't read the exact paragraph that I wanted to read. There was a reason. All that delectable Negro talks like, oh, this is the paragraph I wanted to read. My apologies. It'll hopefully you got a little bit more context. You got two extra paragraphs before all this. John Wallen refers to the attitudes and beliefs of the cannibal club as ardently racist. In addition to being that most of the cannibals were enthusiastic hedonists dedicated to the uh, perusal and collection of pornography and particularly to a fascination with intimate sexual practices of the colonial people they ruled over. Non-white people. Essentially, this group of imperialists, white supremacists, looked down from the Olympian heights of their own racial and class position onto a metaphorical stage where the colonial people non-whites, could be carefully examined and labeled while providing sexual titillation for the imperial masters. The cannibal club are very much concerned with forging ahead with ethnographic and phrenological practices that support an understanding of mankind as the product of multiple genes. The Ethnological Society formed in London in 1843 would have been dedicated to works of racial science such as craniotomy crani- craniotomy never even heard that word before craniotomy and other practices of anatomical measurement. Were it not for Darwin, they would have continued to be unified in this racialist agenda Darwin's argument that mankind was a single species led to a split within the society in 1863, civil war still rolling, and the rise of a rival organization made of polygenesis diehards, the Anthropological Society of London that dedicated itself to the minute collection of data as a means of providing the differences between the races. Wallen offers that during the American Civil War, the Anthropological Society was a strong supporter of the Confederacy and its pro-slavery policies. This grow was highly influential and was compromised by members of the establishment, including with its ranks were MPs, diplomats, lawyers, academics and the members of the armed forces and, in fact, used these government and scientific channels to procure some of their most coveted materials. What would that be? Hmm. Pornography? Negro skeletons and skulls and all the rest of it? Hmm. That's what I saw, but that's the one that, the Cannibal Club. Hmm. Hmm. There's a little bit more about the Cannibal Club, but anyway, reading more important. Than watching television as I said, white people telling themselves about what they think about children, anyway, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. We need high functioning brain computers to solve our problems. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring cow signing out. thanks all for tuning in
20: nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother problem you're a victim Uh, i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition even my conditioning has been conditioned (laughs)